We were just like <laughs> being drunk on Monday. <laughs> we were just like feeling drunk on and she's been talking about painting the whole time <laughs> and she's finally painting okay so i'm madison emma is sadly not here today but don't worry we're still drunk on a monday um emma's having a wonderful time on her trip in alaska the photos that she's posted of it are just gorgeous um, and we'll hear more about her trip when she comes back, but in the meantime, while I have your attention, I'm doing a solo episode today talking all things Akatar, um, A Court of Thorns and Roses. It's a fantasy book series written by Sarah J. Mass, and I'm so excited to talk about it. Um, it's truly probably my favorite book series I've ever read, and Eliza and Emma have not read it yet. They're going to, but they haven't yet, and I don't want to spoil anything for them, so I try not to talk about it or talk at them about it. Um, <laughs> so I have my little wine in a teacup today because I know they drink out of goblets and things, but I don't have a goblet. And, you know, just drinking out of a teacup felt kind of on brand, and I can't really explain why, because that's not what happens in the books. But yeah, I'm going to do it. So today, if you haven't read Akatar, I'll let you know when spoilers are going to come. Um, but that's probably not going to be into the last half of the episode because I want to start by talking about what Akatar actually is. Um, give some background about the wonderful Sarah J. Mass, who is the author of these books. And then talk about book talk, which my favorite side of TikTok. <laughs> and then I'll actually get into the plot of the book. Um, but like I said... I will definitely let you know when spoilers are going to happen because there's nothing worse than getting a book that you really want to read spoiled. So I'll definitely let you guys know. Um, but I would say probably at least the first half of this episode you'll be good to listen to if you haven't read it yet and don't want spoilers. And then this book is really dense, though. There's a lot of plot. Sarah puts a lot of plot in these books and we love her for it. But... I'm not sure if I'll be able to fit all of this in one episode, <laughs> so likely this will be a two-parter, but don't fret. It'll all come out soon enough, and we'll get you all the good bits of what is happening with these fairies. Come on. So I have my wine, and it's raining. It's a cozy day for reading. Great day to talk about books, so without further ado, let's just get into it. Okay, so Akatar, what is it? Um, Akatar, like I said before, is a court of thorns and roses. It's um, some people say it's a young adult book, but I definitely would debate that. Um, I think it's definitely in the adult fantasy genre, and it's the first book in the A Court of Thorns and Roses series by Sarah J. Mass. Um, so yes, it is about fairies. Okay, but girl, it is not. A kid's book, okay? It's not Tinkerbell. There's really intricate plots and characters. It gets really dark and violent at times, and it's really raw, and yes, 
these fairies fuck <laughs> let me tell you it is so spicy at times literally once you get into these books i feel like it's really hard to stop reading them <laughs> and yes honestly magic is a big part of this but honestly i often forget that they're fairies like obviously i know that they are and there's magic and all of these things happening but you just get so wrapped up in the stories and the relationships that it doesn't feel as like whimsical as like a little kid's book and it it definitely is not so if you have heard of Actor, even if you haven't, and you're like, mm, I don't know if it's for me. Okay. If you loved any of the following, either growing up or you still love it now, you are a prime candidate for this series. Okay. So if you were into Harry Potter, if you were into Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, uh, the Percy Jackson series, if that was like your thing growing up, you know what I mean? Twilight even, um, Hunger Games, if growing up you always looked for those like Egyptology books where it was like a big picture book and had all the little intricate things in it, um, this is for you, okay? If you were a kid growing up and you were really into like Greek mythology, like I feel like a lot of us had that phase. I know I definitely did. <laughs> um, or if you're just really into fairy tales, like you grew up and you really loved either Grimm's fairy tales or the lighter like Disney princess stuff. Honestly, if you loved any of those things, this book will hit home for you. And now I feel like before reading this series, I hadn't really read fantasy books since I was a kid, since I read like the Percy Jacksons or the Twilight or things growing up. Um, I feel like I got into either a lot of classic lit or like Stephen King, like horror, but I hadn't really let myself get into the fantasy genre and I feel like part of that was just I don't know I don't know if I had internalized something or whatever but I was like nah I'm not into that type of stuff even though I obviously am <laughs> so don't see the fantasy genre and let it scare you away if you're not someone who thinks you're into that if you already know you love the fantasy genre, then hell yeah, you're going to love this book. And I'm sure you've probably already read it. <laughs> but if you haven't, don't let the fantasy genre stop you. Honestly, just indulge it. Just indulge it. Just give it a go. And I promise you're not going to regret it. These books are so amazing. Um, so the synopsis of this from our back cover. <clears throat> when 19-year-old Huntress Feyre kills a wolf in the woods, a beast-like creature arrives to demand retribution for it. Dragged to a treacherous, magical land she only knows about from legends, Farrah discovers that her captor is not an animal, but Tamlin, one of the lethal, immortal fairies who once ruled their world. As she dwells on his estate, her feelings for Tamlin transform from icy hostility into a fiery passion that burns through every lie and warning she's been told about the beautiful, dangerous world of the Fae. But an ancient, wicked shadow over the fairy lands is growing, and Farrah must find a way to stop it or Doom Tamlin, in his world forever. Perfect for fans of Kristen Cashor and George R. R. Martin, this first book in a sexy and action-packed new series is impossible to put down. And let me tell you, that is true. <laughs> so A Court of Thorns and Roses includes five books currently. So it starts with A Court of Thorns and Roses, and then it goes to A Court of Mist and Fury, a Court of Wings and Ruin, A Court of Frost and Starlight, and A Court of Silver Frames. Now, um, they are still 
making new books, right? Sarah J. Mass is still currently writing. Um, and we'll get a little bit into that in a second, but don't worry, there's not only five, there will be more. <laughs> um, and so A Court of Thrones and Roses, which is Mass's second fantasy series, it's a loose retelling of the traditional Beauty and the Beast. So the first book of the trilogy was actually written in 2009, but it wasn't published until 2015. Um, due to the success and popularity of her original series, this was extended and a spin-off series was also announced, which features stories from some of the other popular characters. So the fourth book of the series um, is where the spin-offs start. And so it features some stories and background from some of the other main characters. Um, and A Quarter Silver Flames was published on February 16th, 2021. So that's the fifth book in the series. So she hasn't produced another Avatar book for a few years, but that's because she has so much else going on. But yes, it is an ongoing series and hell fucking yes. <laughs> and also in exciting news, the Court of Thorns and Roses series is in development for TV. Um, and what's even better is Mass is adapting the series. And I feel like sometimes when you go from books to movies or books to TV shows, if they don't include the author, I feel like instantly... That's where things start to go wrong. And yes, everyone who's read the books is probably going to watch the series and either not like it or like it but have some reservations. You know, the classic, like, well, the book was better. And I mean, yeah, I'm probably going to be one of those people too. Um, but, you know, it's not like I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> so she's adapting the series for Hulu with Ron Moore, who was the creator of the Outlander series. Um, but it's in very early stages right now. So they haven't even officially announced the cast yet. But what I will say is when I first saw that it was going to be released on Hulu, I was kind of like, oh, man, I would have loved to see it on HBO or something like that, just because of how well they did the um, Game of Thrones series. Well, at least until the last season. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? But because these books are so raw and adult, I really didn't want to see any of that tampered down. But I do feel like Hulu has been, um, you know, has been releasing more like adult or really comprehensive TV series. So I'm kind of hopeful. And the fact that Ron Moore is doing it gives me a lot of hope because the Outlander series is amazing. Um, and that was really adult. So I'm hoping the combination of Mass and Moore together will be a success, you know? <laughs> um, but these books are dense. Okay. The first book, so Akatar is 432 pages coming in at 130,000 words. Um, and if you think that's dense, you get to the second one. <laughs> uh, Court of Mist and Fury is 640 pages long with 186,000 words. And then the next one, A Court of Wings and Ruin, is 720 pages at just under 200,000 words. And you know what? I flew through them and I still can't get enough. <laughs> so, like I said, they're dense. And even if the books were shorter, you know, less amount of pages, there's still so much plot packed into these babies that you're, it, it's not a dull moment. And yes, there is a little bit of slow burn on certain things, but once the book picks up, it doesn't stop. <laughs> it does not stop. Um, and so these books are everywhere. Like if you go into Barnes and Noble, uh, Books a Million, even into Target, they're on display, probably towards the front, um, because they are insanely popular. So 
They also have Kindle versions, and actually the Kindle versions have really heavy discounts on them, and they have some Kindle like ebook bundles too. So I know not everyone is on the Kindle train. I honestly wasn't until I started reading these books. Um, part of it was because they're so dense that reading the paperback was actually hard to hold. <laughs> and the other reason was because once I finished a book, I wanted to instantly start the next one, but if I hadn't already like bought it, then I would have to wait to be able to go to the store and get it, and I'm so impatient. So <laughs> I have actually switched over to reading on a Kindle, and I do love it. So I'm not trying to have a hot take here, but the Kindle is great. Um, and the one I have is waterproof, so I can bring it in the hot tub with me, which is really nice. <laughs> but so the the first Akatar book, the paperback list price is $19, but I think it's on sale right now on Amazon for 10 uh, which is honestly a really good deal, but uh, the Kindle version is eight. However, you can get the Akatar five book bundle on Kindle for $40, which is an insane deal, saying as if you go into the store to buy the paperback, it's 19 So I saw that and I was like, what the hell? So I don't know if she has like some kind of deal or contract with Amazon, but they have that ebook bundle deal for $40. And so the Throne of Glass series, which I'll talk about in a second, is eight books currently, and that ebook Kindle deal is also $40. So if you're trying to get into this and you really want all the books right there so you can like read through all of them and not have to wait in between um, and you have a Kindle, then look into those bundle options because honestly, they are a really good deal. All right, so let's get into a little bit more about Sarah J. Mass, the creator of Akatar. Um, as of 2022, she has sold over 12 million copies of her books, and her work has been translated into 37 languages. So when I say this woman is worldwide, like, she's worldwide, and her fans love her. So she has three major fantasy series, and they're all in the same fictional universe, which I don't know if I'll get into that too much because I don't want to give away spoilers of all the other books, but... All of her books take place in this universe where there is magic at varying levels or there's fae or other creatures. So um, there's been talk about potential crossovers between the different characters in these books. And that might actually come out in a book soon. So we have Akhtar, like I've been talking about. We have the Throne of Glass series and we have the Crescent City series. Plus she does have a standalone book um, called Catwoman Soul Stealer, which I don't really know anything about, but... Um, she has a lot of books out and she is currently writing more. So Mass was born on March 5th, 1986 in New York City. She grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and she said as a child she enjoyed creating stories based on popular tales or myths. Now this, yeah, I can see it and I'm probably not going to be able to get into it too much because there's already just so much to talk about with the book, but the amount of references to you know, fairy tales, mythology, various cultures across the world in her books is honestly kind of astounding. So she's definitely very well read and I can see her doing that. <laughs> and she says she also used to write Sailor Moon fan fiction in her youth, which I think is so funny. <laughs> and we love a fanfic queen. So she's been writing her entire life, truly. Um, in 2008, Mass graduated from Hamilton College where she majored in creative writing and minored in religious studies, which again, 
I think makes a lot of sense because of all of the different references she makes in all of these books. Not only to, you know, mythology, but, you know, she references mythology of different religions across the world and cultures and even, you know, ancient religions and things like that. So, you know, that background makes sense. (laughs) Um, Mass began writing what would become her debut novel, Throne of Glass. So that's the first book from the Throne of Glass series when she was 16 years old. I'm just going to let that sit with you. Can you imagine what you were doing at 16? I know what I was doing at 16. Uh, not writing a worldwide famous novel. I can tell you that with intricate plots and storylines that develop over eight books. So yeah, um, she's pretty damn impressive. After writing several chapters of the novel, which was then titled Queen of Glass, Mass posted them on fictionpress.com, where it was one of the most popular stories on the site. Now, there are, like, thousands of things posted on this site. And this was really in the heyday of things like um, Fiction Press, WordPress, Tumblr, you know, where there was a lot of fanfic and original content getting written. But it was later removed from the site when she decided to publish the novel. And honestly, I love this so much. She was 16 and she was like, I want to get my work out there. And she did it and was so successful that she was like, I'm publishing this. (coughs) Excuse me. So I'm not used to talking to myself this much. I'm already going hoarse. This isn't looking good for the rest of the episode. Okay. So these books grow with mass. And what I mean is you can see the stories and the characters develop as her talents develop and she herself matures. These books grow with her. And I honestly just think that's beautiful. And you can kind of tell, like, you wouldn't necessarily know that if you read the books without knowing this backstory about her and how young she truly was when she started writing these. Um, But if you know that going into it, I feel like you can feel it. You know, you can feel the plots and the characters They're already beautiful and very well-developed, book one, but they really, really just get so much deeper and so much more developed and mature as she goes on. Um, And so her character development specifically has been lauded as one of her best qualities for storytelling um, because she was able to create morally great characters with strong world-building, hence the Massiverse as what it's been named, which is her fictional universe where all of her books take place. And she truly does this. Like, I've been reading the Throne of Glass series, I've read most of the Avatar series, and there are so many characters where it's not easy to put them on either side of the line, good or bad. Um, And I think she really does well not only developing these characters, but developing their backstories and what truly motivates them. So it makes you as a reader hard to decide if you truly hate a character sometimes or love them or you don't know if you should love them or not and it's honestly just really thrilling as a reader um so there are eight books in the throne of glass series there's five books in the actar series and there are two books currently in the crescent city series but the next book to be released by mass is going to be crescent city book three which i believe is going to be titled house of flame and shadow and that's coming out next january so january 2024 Um, which I'm excited about, which I haven't started the Crescent City books. Um, if you're looking to get into Mass's books, 
I would say start with Akatar because I think that's one of the books where it's easiest to not only kind of grip the the world that she's created, but it draws you in really, really quickly. Um, and I think it has the most appeal to like a wider audience. Not that her other books don't, but I just think that's one of the ones that's easiest to get into her books with. And then I would move to the Throne of Glass series. Um, so that's what I've been doing. So I read the first three Akatar. And then I've started Throne of Glass. So now I'm on the third Throne of Glass book as of midnight. Because <laughs> I stayed up late so I could finish the second book. Because like what I said, her books, once they get going, oh my god, they just go. And they go and they go and they go. And then you get to the end of a book, you're like, oh my god, I need to start the next book. So having that ebook bundle is really nice for me. <laughs> um... But I have heard that the Crescent City series is probably the hardest to wrap your head around in terms of the, like, the world that she's created in that one. So I would say maybe don't start with that if you're trying to get into her books just because they are very dense and I think there's a lot of world and character development so it might be a little bit slower getting into it. Um, so I would say start with Akatar and then Throne of Glass and then move to Crescent City, but you know... I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. So if you want to start with Crescent City or you already have, great. And I'm sure they're amazing books. I'm excited to get to them, but I can only read so many 700-page books at once. <laughs> um, so honestly, I don't have anything negative to say about Sarah J. Mass as an author. Um, and I'm so excited that she's continuing to develop these universes because I feel like there's nothing worse than finding a book series you love and then it ends and the author's like, yeah, I'm never writing more of those. All of these books and all of these series are very much still in flight and I don't think I've heard from anyone where they're like, yeah, we're ready for them to be done. You know, I think everyone is still very hungry for more. So I'm just so excited to see what else she has in store for us. All right, so we got to talk about book talk. Personally, it's my favorite set of TikTok um, and a lot of book talk. Um, I feel like talks about fantasy genre, which is really exciting because that's actually how I got into Akatar. I had obviously seen the covers around. Um, they're pretty iconic. And also, you know, a little... <laughs> diversion here um the cover art for her books is gorgeous I don't know who does them but they're beautiful um and they're just very nice pieces to have around your house <laughs> uh, if you're not even planning on reading them which you should but they're just gorgeous anyway so um they're very iconic so I had definitely seen the books around but again I hadn't really gotten back into reading so I was a huge reader growing up um, I was one of those kids that had at least two books going at the same time, if not three. Um, I'm an only child and my parents worked a lot growing up, you know, to support us. So I had a lot of time to myself and I feel like I really just invested myself in books and that's really how I kept myself occupied. So I used to read a lot growing up and then I got into high school and I would kind of read for fun, but... I was in so many classes and just trying to prep for college and doing all the extracurriculars that I didn't really read as much. And then in college, I don't think I read for fun really until maybe the end of senior year because I was just so busy and reading so much. Like going to school for engineering, 
you're reading a lot of really dry material and it's very hard to just try and go read something else after. Like you feel burned out and you, you get in your head about it. It's like, oh, it's so much work to read. I don't want to read. I've just been looking at books all day, but that's truly not it. It does not take a lot of brain power to read, (laughs) but that's what I would tell myself. So I started kind of getting back into reading, but I wouldn't say I really became a reader again until I started Akatar. Um, so I feel like that's the other reason why these books have a little special place in my heart because they really helped me find my love for reading again. And I'm now at the point where I'm reading things and I just always need to have a book going. Um, and I'll like read at night instead of watching TV, which I feel like I used to also not do. I'd get home from work and I would just put TV on and that was my night, you know? Um, so that's the other reason why it has a little special place in my heart. Um... But yeah, I got introduced to it fully because of TikTok. So like I said before, these books are insanely popular. Um, and they're very popular with the book talk girlies. So I will say be cautious going on Akatar. Um, my God, I can't speak. Going on Akatar book talk. You are not safe from spoilers on Akatar book talk. I have had major plot points ruined for me accidentally because I'm just scrolling through. And I mean, I can't be mad about it because I'm the one who went and saw it. But sometimes I'm not even looking for them. They just come up on my For You page because I probably liked so many things about Sarah J. Mass on TikTok that they just pop up. But yes, you, you're you not safe from spoilers there. I'll tell you when you're going to have spoilers on this podcast. But if you go on Book Talk, I'm sorry, I can't protect you there. Go at your own risk. But honestly, the memes are so fucking funny. <laughs> Once you get into Akatar, I would say if you really want to be protected from spoilers, you need to read through most of the second Akatar book. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you why, because I don't want to spoil it for you, but there are some major things that happen that might change your perceptions about some things, or there might be some new characters that get introduced that the thrill of finding out these things as you're reading it is so good. You you don't want that ruined for you. Truly, you don't. So if you really want to be safe, maybe don't go on Akatar Book Talk until you've read through most of book two. But that's just my little warning. Um, but I personally believe Book Talk has helped pull new audiences into the fantasy genre. Um, yeah, like that's me. It helped me find, you know, my inner like fantasy genre love again that I had when I was a kid. And I think a lot of us, we get older, we mature, and we're like, I'm not really into things like that anymore. But just, like, just let yourself, just let yourself enjoy things. What is life without enjoyment, you know? Not to get too, like, deep here, but just let yourself read the silly little book. I mean, it's not a silly little book, but let yourself read the fantasy book, okay? And so I think that Book Talk has actually really helped like draw people back into this side of things that they might not have realized they still loved from when they were a child. Um, also things I see on book talk that I want to be a part of, there are Akatar balls being held. Can I go to one, please? Can you imagine how fun that would be? Um, I think a lot of them are held by bookbound events. Um, but They're literally in these beautiful buildings and it's a ball and everyone goes and they all dress up in these beautiful like 
fae-themed outfits, so these gorgeous gowns, and they have their crowns on, and their hair is all pretty, and they have all these, like, fun drinks and snacks, and they literally just dance all night. I need to go. I need to go. Can someone please go and take me? Or they need to do one that's, like, in Boston or something so I can go to it. Um, The most recent one I've seen is in Colorado, I believe, which is the Valaris Starfall Ball which I won't tell you why I really especially want to go to that one (laughs) because that would be a spoiler from book two, but I think it's sold out. So, I mean, but also we're from Maine, so I'm probably not going to go to Colorado for this specifically, but I want to be there. I want to dress up as a fae and go dance around with my friends and just have the time of my life because I want to be in these books. That's one rough part about reading these books. You're going to want to be in them. Like, you're going to want to live in the Massiverse, and then you're going to have to realize that, no, I have to go get in my car and drive into the office tomorrow and log on to Teams and make a PowerPoint. And it's really upsetting. So, uh, just giving you that warning (laughs) as well. But I seriously need to be there. Can someone do one in Maine? Or even Boston, like I said. I I will go. Please let me go. I need to be there. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and also, before I get into actually talking about the book, I do want to give a special shout out to um, Jackie Zabrowski and Natalie Jean from LPN Deep Dives. So that is a podcast. And they do amazing coverage of Akatar. So what the way they set it up is you can actually read through the books with them. So it's not, it's not an audio book, but they'll have an episode and they're like, for the next episode, read up to page 351 or chapter whatever. And for the next episode where they told you to read up to that point, they'll talk about everything that happens and it's so comprehensive. So there's a lot of episodes, but they do such a good job covering the stories, themes, plot devices. One thing I especially love is they go through all of the different references that Sarah J. Mass is pulling into her stories. So they'll talk about whether it was like a Grimm's fairy tale or a mythology from this religion or this, you know, classic short story. Like they do an amazing job going through it. And they also don't reveal spoilers. So when they say only read up to this page, they'll only talk about that and they won't um, like pull in their opinions from stuff they've read passed on or things like that. So if you want a really comprehensive deep dive of these books, go, go listen to LPN Deep Dives. Um, like I said, it's LPN, the letters, Deep Dives with Jackie Zabrowski and Natalie Jean. Love them. Love that content so much. I've been listening through, um, so I'm almost caught up to all the episodes they've gotten through. I think they're getting through um, A Court of Mist and Fury right now. So, oh my God, it's just so fun to hear them talk about and hear like two people who also love this book series as much as I do, like talk about it. It's just, it's so awesome. So I highly suggest going and listening to that if you want like a super, super deep dive, like deeper than I'm even going today. Um, or if you're like me and you just want to consume all of the Akatar content, then hey, go them, give them a listen because I think they are planning to go through like all of the books. So definitely a lot of content there. But I think I've done all of the talking about the series and about the author and about everything about it. So I think it's time to actually 
get into the book. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Okay. Um, this is the point where if you don't want spoilers, I would love you to keep listening, but stop. Uh, because I am going to start actually talking through the plot and all of the major things that happen in this book, and I'll be reading excerpts from the book. So if you don't want to know what happens yet, you can probably still listen a bit into it, but I probably just stop because if you don't want spoilers, stop here. Okay. I think I've said it so many times now, so you can't get mad at me now if you keep listening and find out something you didn't want to. So... really hard to contain my excitement. (laughs) All right, so I have my notes. I have my book, which has a lot of things earmarked in it. And let's just give this a go. Like I said, it's probably gonna have to be two parts, but we'll just see where it takes us. So again, this is truly one of my all-time favorites, but the second book is actually probably my top. So just saying... Read these books, please. (laughs) And I'm going to try and give this review with the thoughts and feelings I had when I was reading it for the first time um, before I read any of the other books and before I knew anything more than what was happening in the first book. Um, And, you know, what all those characters get into after because, like I said, she's an amazing storyteller and there are surprises left and right So I'm going to try to do my best to cover this with my original thoughts and feelings before I knew anything else. Okay? (laughs) Um, So when you open the book, before you even get into the story, we have a map. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm a sucker for when you like read a book like this and they have like a map drawn up for the um, setting of this book. So... It is a map of two countries, island countries next to each other, and almost kind of looks like Great Britain and Ireland. Um, I don't know if that's on purpose or not, but that's just kind of what the shapes look like to me. And the bigger one is Prithian, and then to the left of it, the smaller one is Highburn. And what you can see within Prithian is that there, at, towards the bottom, there is a wall And the bottom part is called the Mortal Lands. And then everything above are the Fairy Realms. And the realms are actually divided into courts. So going up from the wall. So we have the Mortal Lands. We have the wall. Which we also have a little marker for Feyre's Village. Like right near the forest. That's near the wall. Um, And then once you go past the wall, there's the Spring Court. And then above that, there's the Summer and Autumn Court next to each other. And then above that, we have the Winter Court. And then above that, we have something called Under the Mountain, which, what is that? I don't know. I'm sure we'll get into that. (laughs) And then above that is the Dawn Court. Above that is the Day Court. And then there's the Night Court. So we've got a lot happening here. And the Night Court is the biggest court out of all of them um, up at the top. So that's what we start with. Before you even get into the book, you already know. There's a lot happening here. <laughs> um, and also, when you start writing these books, you'll see that they're written in first person. So we see everything through Feyre's eyes. So everything in this book is in Feyre's head. And I think this is done very intentionally. And I don't think this is a hot take at all. 
um, as a storytelling device from mass. We can only see things as Feyre perceives them, how she experiences events and responds to characters. And remember, we're dealing in a world of magic and fey, okay? Which typically stories in these worlds involve a level of all is not as it appears to be, right? And Mass definitely uses this to her advantage in developing plot and revealing details to the reader. So I think, you know, when I started reading this, I was like, oh, I don't really love when it's written in first person. Um, but I've actually grown to love that because it's, it's done on purpose and it's done very well. So if you're also a person that doesn't like first POV, well, get over it, okay? <laughs> so... We start on the first page. The forest had become a labyrinth of snow and ice. I'd been monitoring the parameters of the thicket for an hour, and my vantage point in the crook of a tree had turned useless. The gusting wind blew thick flurries to sweep away my tracks, but buried along with them any signs of potential quarry. Hunger had brought me farther from home than I usually risked, but winter was the hard time. The animals had pulled in, going deeper into the woods that I could follow leaving me to pick off stragglers one by one, praying they'd last until spring. They hadn't. I wiped my numb fingers over my eyes, brushing away the flakes clinging to my lashes. Here there were no telltale trees stripped of bark to mark the deer's passing. They hadn't yet moved on. They would remain until the bark ran out, then travel north past the wolves' territory and perhaps into the fairylands of Prithian, where no mortals would dare go not unless they had a death wish. A shudder skittered down my spine at the thought, and I shoved it away, focusing on my surroundings, on the task ahead. That was all I could do, all I'd been able to do for years, focus on surviving the week, the day, the hour ahead. And now, with the snow, I'd be lucky to spot anything, especially from my position up in the tree, scarcely able to see 15 feet ahead. Stifling a groan as if my stiff limbs protested at the movement, I unstrung my bow before easing off the tree. So that's how we start the book. And we slowly get more information about Favor's background um, and why she and her family are starving, which they kind of get through in the first chapter, but I'm just going to get into it now. Her family used to be wealthy. Her father was a merchant, but he had made a bad investment eight years ago and lost everything. So lost all of the family's money. Um, and her mother also died around this time, when Feyre was very young, and she asked Feyre, who is the youngest of three daughters, to promise to take care of her father and the two older sisters, Nesta and Elaine, on her deathbed. So she's like, my dying wish is for you, the youngest one, to take care of everyone else. <laughs> Which is like wild to me I'm like who would do that and remember this was eight years ago and I think Farah is only like 18 so that was when she was like 10 years old what which is insane to me <laughs> um so Farah also mentions the wall right alluding to a history where the fae and humans coexisted but it doesn't sound like it was in harmony um and we find out later that there was a great war that resulted in a treaty where a magical wall was erected to keep the two races apart, human and fae divided. From the fear we can feel from Feyre in this scene, the fae did not treat humans well, and we also learn that many fae were really brutal and kept humans as slaves or playthings. So it definitely seems good that these two are separated, but I can understand why 
she's so scared and on edge being in this territory. And I think normally she wouldn't want to be here, but remember, she's taking care of her entire family and she's hunting so that they can survive because they're starving. They have no money. She needs to fight. She needs to hunt to get them food to take care of them. But also in these first few pages, we find out that she has a lover. Um, so this is on page three. Stolen hours in a decrepit barn with Isaac Hale didn't count. Those times were hungry and empty and sometimes cruel, but never lovely. So she mentions this as she's talking about basically how terrible her life is, which is really sad. Um, but she talks about how there might have been times in the past eight years where she was kind of happy, but nothing was ever lovely. And nothing had been lovely since her father lost all of their money. Um, and so she's saying even this man that she's kind of involved with, it's, it's not lovely, right? Um, and so we don't get the sense that she's in love with this boy, but more that he's an escape from her life. And I really love that she doesn't write Feyre, Sarah Damas doesn't write Feyre, to be a traditional maiden that many fairy tales typically showcase. Uh, she fucks and good for her. Good for Feyre. <laughs> so we're back to hunting now. And she sees a deer. And she gets ready to take a shot at it. But she realizes she's not the only one hunting this deer. Brushes rustled across the clearing. That was bad. I'm going to restart. <laughs> Bushes rustled across the clearing. Drawing my bow was a matter of instinct. I peered through the thorns and my breath caught. Less than 30 paces away stood a small doe. Not yet too scrawny from winter, but desperate enough to wrench bark from a tree in the clearing. A deer that could feed my family for a week or more. My mouth watered, quiet as the wind hissing through the dead leaves. I took aim. She continued tearing off strips of bark, chewing loudly, utterly unaware that her death waited yards away. I could dry the meat, and we could immediately eat the rest, stews, pies. Her skin could be sold or perhaps turned into clothing for one of us. I needed new boots, but Elena needed a new cloak, and, and Nesta was prone to crave anything someone else possessed. My fingers trembled. So much food. Such salvation. I took a steadying breath, double-checking my aim. But there was a pair of golden eyes shining from the brush adjacent to mine. The forest went silent. The wind died. Even the snow paused. We mortals no longer kept gods to worship, but if I had known their lost names, I would have prayed to them. All of them. Concealed in the thicket, the wolf inched closer, its gaze set on the oblivious doe. He was enormous, the size of a pony. And though I'd been warned about their presence, my mouth turned bone dry. But worse than his size was unnatural stealth. Even as he inched closer in the brush, he remained unheard, unspotted by the doe. No animal that massive could be so quiet. But if he was no ordinary animal, if he was of Prithian origin, if he was somehow a fairy, then being eaten was the least of my concerns. If he was a fairy, I should already be running. Yet maybe. Maybe it would be a favor to the world, to my village, to myself, to kill him while I remained undetected. Putting an arrow through his eye would be no burden. Oh, <laughs> so we find out through this that Faye can shapeshift 
and even with the wall, some fae do get through. Now, Feyre has an ash arrow, which apparently is lethal to fae, as normal arrows probably wouldn't do much harm, is what it sounds like. She seems to believe this wolf could be fae, but due to her starvation, desperation for her family, uh, hate for the fae, or maybe a combination of three, she knocks the arrow in her bow. The wolf shot from the brush in a flash of gray and white and black, his yellow fangs gleaming. He was even more gargantuan in the open, a marvel of muscle and speed and brute strength. The doe didn't stand a chance. I fired the ash arrow before he destroyed much else of her. The arrow found its mark in his side, and I could have sworn the ground itself shuddered. He barked in pain, releasing the doe's neck as his blood sprayed on the snow. So were we bright. He whirled toward me, those yellow eyes wide, hackles raised. His low growl reverberated in the empty pit of my stomach as I surged to my feet, snow churning around me, another arrow drawn. But the wolf merely looked at me, his maw stained with blood, my ash arrow protruding so vulgarly from his side. The snow began falling again. He looked, and with a sort of awareness and surprise that made me fire the second arrow, just in case just in case that intelligence was of the immortal, wicked sort. He didn't try to dodge the arrow as it went clean through his wide yellow eye. He collapsed to the ground. Color and darkness whirled, eddying in my vision, mixing with the snow. So, <laughs> she kills him. And she skins the wolf as she cannot carry both the doe and the wolf back to her family's cottage. And in doing so, we hear her internal conflict where she wishes that she could feel bad for killing this beast. You know, as she kind of tells herself, it was just a wolf. But deep down, like the way she's thinking about it, and we can hear it as we're in first person, it seems like she knows it was more than that, but she keeps telling herself it wasn't. But she still can't feel bad for killing it even though she kind of wants to. She can only do what she needs to do to survive. She doesn't have capacity to do anything else at this point. So she carries the doe and the wolf's pelt back several miles through snowy forests, which I don't know, have you ever tried to walk through the snow like in the woods without a nice trail or something? Um, it's actually really hard. So I can't imagine carrying a doe through this in a snowstorm, four miles, while you're freezing because you've been out there all day and starving. This girl's a badass already. <laughs> like, that's brutal. <laughs> so, she comes home and her father is just kind of chilling by the fire. Um, ever since he lost their money, he hasn't done much. Um, part of this is because men he owed money to from this bad investment that went wrong. Um, they had come to get their debts and because he couldn't pay them, they beat him for not paying his debts. And Pharaoh witnessed it. And it permanently injures his knee. So she describes it as being mangled and he has to walk with a cane. Now, Elaine and Nesta are also just chilling in this cottage. Um, not really with much sense of urgency to do anything to help keep themselves or the family alive. <laughs> so dad is a shell of a man. Um, as you'll come to see, Nesta's kind of a bitch. <laughs> Elaine is really sweet, but seems to be kind of useless, and mom's dead. So, that's great. That's fun. You know, great family bonding time. 
Um, so instantly when she comes in, Nesta and Elaine are like, Ooh, look, you got a deer. Ooh, look, there's a pelt. Oh my gosh. Um, I need new boots. I need a cloak. Well, Farrah's just kind of like, uh, did anyone cut firewood today? No, or do anything at all? No. Okay. And they're just like fawning over this pelt that she's gotten. Um, so Feyre kind of goes to work prepping the dough for a meal for her family, because apparently, again, the family can't do anything for themselves. Um, and she decides that she'll sell the pelt at the market tomorrow to get money for the family. Now, while this scene unfolds, we kind of get more background on the family. Um, you know, as she's kind of working away and they're kind of tittering off to themselves about this pelt and whatever. You hear Feyre's internal thoughts about these things. Um... Her father's injury has left him lame, so all he does is kind of carve little wooden figures to sell, but he doesn't really sell many, so it doesn't seem like an actual source of income for the family. Um, Elaine is described kind of as naive, and her lack of usefulness isn't necessarily on purpose, but it's rather like a lack of awareness of like she could actually be helping. So I'm not saying that's a great excuse, but Elaine definitely isn't pictured to us as like mean. Uh, unlike Nesta. <laughs> so Nesta comes off incredibly bitter and cruel. Um, and she's obviously not nice or thankful to Feyre, and But she definitely hates their father probably the most out of everyone. Um, she definitely blames him for their situation. And now this is just one thing to remember, right? Our view is Feyre's reality. Um, she was the youngest when they lost their money. And when their mother died, Nesta's the oldest. So she was probably really aware of everything that was going on at the time, um, right? They used to have an estate. They had, like, servants and tutors, and she was probably very aware of what was going on when her father lost all their money and her mom died. Um, so I think it's uh, safe to assume she's kind of bitter about that. Um, <laughs> so she probably remembers their old life the most, um, it's not an excuse for the lack of help whatsoever. Like you're the oldest one, you know, you should probably be doing anything at all and not just being a bitch to everyone about it. Um, but I do think it's kind of an interesting point to consider here. Um, uh, what we also learn about is Farrah loves to paint. Oh God, does this bitch love to paint and she loves to talk about painting. Oh my God. It's almost a bit of an eye roll. <laughs> throughout the series, how much Feyre loves to paint. Um, I will say her love for paint and talking about painting does serve more of a purpose in indicating, you know, like mentally where she's at and like if she's healthy or not and things like that. And it'll make more sense as we get through it. But and at first I'm kind of like, what are we even talking about? Why are we talking about paint? Like you're, you guys are almost dying of starvation and we're talking about how much you love to paint. Like, okay. <laughs> but back to the cottage, right? So the sisters are fighting over who gets the pelt while her father seems to be the only one that's concerned about where it came from. So he kind of understands the weight of the possibilities here. Like you just came home with this huge wolf pelt in the forest near the wall where there's been sightings of really huge wolves that we all are saying aren't fairies, but I think we all deep down know it's a fairy, but we don't want to say it. So we're all just saying it's a big wolf. Um, but Farrah's just kind of frustrated with his questioning and this response, um, cause she just wants a damn thank you. She's like, stop asking me where this came from or how I got it. I hunted it because I've been taking care of your sorry asses. And if you could just give me a damn thank you once in a while, that would be great. 
you know, instead of just questioning me. But so she kind of just chooses away. She's like, I, I hunted it. Okay. Like enough. Um, so, you know, she makes, she makes dinner for them and she's like, Nesta, you need to wake up early and do firewood, which obviously Nesta is like not impressed with. Um, and so they wake up the next morning and they go to the market to sell the pelt. And on their way through the market, you know, into the village, they encounter children of the blessed, which are humans who worship the fae. Okay. So they're dressed up in these like hooded cloaks and they have all this jewelry on or whatever. And everyone in town thinks that they're crackpots, um, and kind of just tries to shoo them away. They kind of travel through towns trying to like convert people and everyone just kind of like get out of here. And then they kind of move on to the next town. Now we have some insight that these people will sometimes go to the cracks in the wall to be like saved by the fae that they worship, uh, and they never return. So everyone assumes that they're just killed or worse, which a fate worse than death doesn't sound like something I'm interested in. I don't know about you. We also learn that iron is used by humans to ward off fey magic. Uh, so the sisters have iron bracelets on due to this. So Feyre um, finds a mercenary, which is a female mercenary, which also breath of fresh air. You know, we have woman warriors in this world, which is amazing. <laughs> so she goes and she talks to this female mercenary and um, she's like, hey, I have this pelt to sell. And she's like, how'd you get that? And not necessarily in a way where she's like condescending, but she's kind of like questioning more about the size of it and the pelt itself. But... She ends up selling it to her and she has a conversation with that mercenary who hints that there's trouble on the borders, potentially with the Fae, and there's been attacks, increased numbers of attacks from across the wall, um, which is kind of weird, but she's like, okay. Uh, kind of goes on through the market, shakes her sisters, and we have a little rendezvous with Isaac in a barn. <laughs> uh, but again, there's not really anything to write home about. Truly, it's just probably an escape from her life. Um, she kind of describes it as their encounters are just like hungry, like all teeth, like that, no heart. Um, which is really sad. Her life sucks, honestly. Um, but then they go home and they have dinner and more of the dough that she killed yesterday. Uh, well, this is when, uh, things take a turn. Which, if you didn't think that it was bad, well, now it's worse. A beast bursts through the doorway as they're eating. I didn't know how the wooden hilt of my hunting knife had gotten into my hand. The first few moments were a blur of the snarling of a gigantic beast with golden fur. The shrieking of my sister's the blistering cold cascading into the room, and my father's terror-stricken face. Not a martax, I realized, though the relief was short-lived. The beast had to be as large as a horse, and while his body was somewhat feline, his head was distinctly wolfish. I didn't know what to make of the curled elk-like horns that protruded from his head, but lion or hound or elk, there was no doubting the damage his black, dagger-like claws and yellow fangs could inflict. Had I been alone in the woods, I might have let myself be swallowed by fear, might have fallen to my knees and wept for a clean, quick death. But I didn't have room for terror, wouldn't give it an inch of space, despite my heart's wild pounding in my ears. 
Somehow, I wound up in front of my sister's, even as the creature reared onto its hide legs and bellowed through a maw full of fangs. Murderers! But it was another word that echoed through me. Fairy. So, this is obviously a shock <laughs> to the family. And the dad doesn't really do anything. Um... <laughs> Uh, the sisters are kind of kneeling against the wall and the father kind of crouches in front of them, but he doesn't get in front of Feyre. He kind of lets Feyre shield them, which like, okay. <laughs> like, I understand he's injured or like disabled at this point, but he doesn't really like try to do anything. Um, so he wants to know who killed the wolf and demands payment per their treaty. So he's talking about the treaty that is what put the wall in place after their um, war, right? And so per the treaty, it's a life for a life. So if human kills a fae, fae kills a human, it's life for a life. So we also hear here, Feyre says that fae can't lie. So she has to, like, believe everything he says, which we don't know if that's actually, like, true <laughs> or not. Uh, but she's like, all right, fate can't lie. Um, and so she faces him and declares that she killed the wolf, trying to protect her family and just get him out of there. She's prepared to be killed right there um, to protect her family. Like, she's fully going to this, like, yep, I'll admit it and I'll go down fighting, but I am not letting him take my family. Um, but he offers her another option to go and live with him in the Fey realm forever. So in trading a life for a life, basically saying, well, I'm going to take your life away from you, but not necessarily kill you. I'm just going to make you come live in the fairy world with me. And I mean, well, what's a girl got to do there? I mean, to be fair, if someone offered me that and my life absolutely sucked, I would probably be like, hell yeah, I want to go live with the fairies. I want to go live with magic. But again, um... It's, it's not nice. They're scared of the fairies. They think they're going to torture and kill them. So I guess it's fair. And she also is scared to leave her family behind, right? Because they obviously cannot fend for themselves at all whatsoever. So she's really scared to go, but she doesn't really have a choice. And so she agrees um, to take her away forever. So he binds her to a horse. And as they're kind of riding out of the where her cottage is through the forest... Um, she tries to ask him all these questions and he just like refuses to answer any of them. And he kind of, she just kind of feels like an overwhelming sense of sleep and then she falls asleep. So he definitely like put her to sleep to get her to stop asking questions. <laughs> uh, she awakens and she can tell that she's on the other side of the wall. Um, and she can almost like smell the magic that's being used and she describes it as a metallic tang. So anytime anyone uses magic around her, she can smell it. It smells like metal or iron, which is kind of funny because the humans say that iron repels magic. But if it smells like that, I don't know if that works. Hmm. So they pull up to his estate, um, which looks like spring. And obviously it is stunning, especially compared to where she just came from. But even with that, um, she realizes that he's a high fae. Which we'll get into this a little bit later. Uh, but there are different levels of fae. 
Um, the high fae are the ones that probably look most human-like, but they are also the most powerful and the most gorgeous. Um, and she, he kind of, like, goes up the steps, but he's still in his um, beast form, so she doesn't know what he looks like. But she kind of just gawks at the sheer wealth and elegance of it. And she's taken aback, but she's also kind of disgusted by it because the contracts of the opulence here, you know, to the pain and the starvation of where she's from, she's like, what the fuck? But she's also, like, doesn't really have time to process all of this um, because he brings her into a great hall with a huge table of food. Even though she is starving, she kind of stops herself because there's, you know, all of these warnings about the Fae, all of these things these humans believe about the Fae. Um, one of them is that you're never supposed to eat or drink with the Fae, because if you do that, then they'll take your soul away to the fairy realm forever. But she's like, well, I'm already here forever. So she sits down. (laughs) She's like, well, can't get much worse, right? Like I'm already here. Um, so the beast transforms into his true high fae form and she's like stunned. Um, he was one of the high fae, one of their ruling nobility, beautiful, lethal, and merciless. He was young, or at least what I could see of his face seemed young. His nose, cheeks, and brows were covered by an exquisite golden mask embedded with emeralds shaped like whirls of leaves. Some absurd high fae fashion, no doubt. It left only his eyes, looking the same as they had in his beast form, strong jaw, and mouth for me to see, and the latter tightened into a thin line. You should eat something, he said. Unlike the elegance of his mask, the dark green tunic he wore was rather plain, accented only with a leather baldric across his broad chest. It was more for fighting than for style, even though he bore no weapons I could detect. Not just one of the high fae, but a warrior, too. Hmm. Interesting. So as she's kind of taking all of this in, um, she's pretty freaked out. (laughs) Naturally. Um, so she kind of like won't come into the room fully and she like won't peel herself off the door. Like once he transformed into his like normal high faith, form she kind of starts like inching back towards the door um terrified right like she's like feels like she's cornered but she's not but you know she's just trying to be a wallflower (laughs) um and so she's very naturally freaked out right and he keeps being like all right just sit down and eat and she's like no i don't think i want to do that and um She's just questioning him, and she's like, well, it's not safe for humans, and he kind of just laughs at her, and he's like, of course it's safe for humans. Like, would you rather faint? Uh, And he's like, no, the food's fine. Um, And she's still kind of, like, figuring out her exits. Like, how can she get out? And he goes, leave if you want, he added with a flash of teeth. I'm not your jailer. The gates are open. You can live anywhere in Prithian. So it's become clear that she doesn't actually have to stay with him. Um, Which we didn't really know the like specifics of her little treaty deal with him, right? So she doesn't actually have to stay here. 
But she's like, well, I don't really know where else I'd go or if I'd fare better if I left this estate, right? So another high fae comes in, also wearing a mask, but this one has red hair and he has a scar down his face or what she can see of his face. Um, and one eye that has been replaced by a golden orb that kind of whirls around. Um, and so as they're talking, we learn that her captor's name is Tamlin. And we learn the other high fae that came into the room is Lucian, who is his emissary or like second in command, essentially. Now, Tamlin's very serious and they're having this talk and Lucian obviously does not like Feyre, which makes sense. She killed his friend. So they're discussing. He's like, oh, is he really dead? Blah, blah, blah. So they were obviously friends and he's obviously not going to like Feyre because she murdered his friend. And so he's kind of rude to her and Tamlin kind of tells her to like, tells Lucian to kind of chill out with it, lighten up. And so he's extremely sarcastic towards her, which is honestly really funny he's such a smart ass um but so they talk a bit and tamlin has her brought up to her rooms to be bathed and changed by her new handmaid alice um but as she's leaving she hears a snippet of um lucian and tamlin arguing about her um so I barely made a few steps before Lucian growled, that's the hand the cauldron thought to deal us. She brought Andrus down. We never should have sent him out there. None of them should have been out there. It was a fool's mission. His growl was more bitter than threatening. Could he shapeshift as well? Maybe we should just take a stand. Maybe it's time to say enough. Dump the girl somewhere. Kill her. I don't care. She's nothing but a bird in here. She'd sooner put a knife in your back than talk to you or any of us. I kept my breathing calm, my spine locking, and no, the other bit out. Not until we know for certain that there is no other way we will make a move. And as for the girl, she stays, unharmed, end of discussion. Her life in that hovel was hell enough. My cheeks heated, even while I loosed a tight breath, and I avoided looking at Alice as I felt her eyes slide to me. A hovel? I suppose that's what our cottage was when compared to this place. Then you've got your work cut out for you, old son, Lucian said. I'm sure her life will be a fine replacement for Andrus's. Maybe she can even train with the others on the border. A snarl of irritation resonated through the air. The shining spotless hall swallowed me up before I could hear more. So, for some reason, Tamlin is advocating for her to stay with them and he doesn't want her to be harmed even though it didn't really seem like he was that friendly towards her but it's interesting the line where he says oh well, like that hovel was already hell on earth like she's been through enough like we need to keep her here so it almost seems like he kind of feels bad for her which is kind of interesting um but so she goes up to the room with alice her new handmaiden um who's kind of like, gruff. I don't really know if that's the best way to describe her, but she's not, like, overly friendly. I think everyone's kind of on edge, because there's a human in their house. Who killed one of them. So, I think that's fair. Um, and she tries to dress her in, like, one of the gowns that they've laid out for her, and she says no. She refuses to put the gown on, and it's not necessarily because she's like, oh, I'm not girly. I don't want girly things it it's more that she wants to wear a tunic because she needs to be able to run or escape if possible right she doesn't feel safe here 
She doesn't know what the hell she's going to get into. So she doesn't wear a big frilly gown. Like, she wants to wear pants. Let the girl wear pants. <laughs> um, and she starts to settle in just a little bit, but not really. But she pushes Tamlin about what she's supposed to be doing here. Um, and also what's happening with her family, right? Like, oh my god, what's going to happen to them? No one's there to, like, protect them or care for them. What do you plan to do with me now that I'm here? Tamlin's eyes didn't leave my face. Nothing. Do whatever you want. So not to be your slave? I dared ask. Lucian choked on his wine, but Tamlin didn't smile. I don't keep slaves. I ignored the release of tightness in my chest at that. But what am I to do with my life here, I pressed. Do you... Do you wish me to earn my keep? To, to work? A stupid question if he hadn't considered it, but... But I had to know. Tamlin stiffened. What you do with your life isn't my problem. Lucian pointedly cleared his throat, and Tamlin flashed him a glare. After an exchanged look I couldn't read, Tamlin sighed and said, Don't you have any... interests? No. Not entirely true, but I wasn't about to explain the painting to him. Oh, God, the painting. Not when he was apparently having a great deal of trouble just talking to me civilly. Lucian muttered, so typically human. Tamlin's mouth quirked to the side. Do whatever you want with your time. Just stay out of trouble. So, okay. She's not going to be his slave, which is great. Uh, but there's still the question about her family. I spoke before he could say anything. My family won't last a month without me. Lucian chuckled, and I gritted my teeth. Do you know what it's like to be hungry? I demanded, anger rising to devour any common sense. Do you know what it's like to not know when your next meal will be? Tamlin's jaw tightened. Your family is alive and well cared for. You think so low of fairies that you believe I'd take their only source of income and nourishment and not replace it? I straightened. You swear it? Even if fairies couldn't lie, I had to hear it. A low, incredulous laugh on everything that I am and possess. And so she's kind of pissed off because she's like, why didn't you tell me that already? Like, she hasn't been here for that long, but she's like, couldn't you have just told me that, like, in the beginning, that that was your plan? Um, but he doesn't really tell her, like, how they're, pr like, provided for or anything yet, but he just tells her, yep, they're provided for, okay. Um, and they continue to talk, and then Tamlin and Lucian ask her about her love life, which Farrah thinks is a ridiculous contrast to everything else that's happening. Um, I can't blame her. Like, you just asked this man if you were gonna be his slave, and now they're asking you, so, um, do you have any suitors? Like, <laughs> What? And she's also kind of like, why do they care? Like, why would these two fae, like, hi fae, care if I have a man at home? Like, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, and so she's like, I'm stuck here forever and you want to see if I have a crush on anyone. I'm caring about my family and if they're going to live. But all right, quote, cool. cool. So she pushes on and she tries to find a loophole asking about the treaty and, you know, just pushes more about it. Um, but she finds out something kind of interesting here. That treaty, he said quietly, doesn't ban us from doing anything except for enslaving you. The wall is an inconvenience. If we cared to, we could shatter and march through and kill you all. 
I might be forced to live in Prithian forever, but my family, I dared ask, and do you care to destroy the wall? He looked me up and down as if deciding whether I was worth the effort of explaining. I have no interest in the mortal lands, though I can't speak for my kind. But he still hadn't answered my question. Then what was your friend doing there? Tamlin stilled, such unearthly, primal grace, even to his breathing. There is a sickness in these lands, across Prithian. There has been for almost fifty years now. It is why this house and these lands are so empty. Most have left. The blight spreads slowly, but has made magic act strangely. My own powers are diminished due to it. These masks, he tapped on his, are the result of a surge of it that occurred during the masquerade 49 years ago. Even now, we can't remove them. Stuck in masks for nearly 50 years. I would have gone mad, would have peeled my skin off my face. You didn't have a mask as a beast, and neither did your friend. The blight is cruel like that. Either live as a beast or live with the mask. What what sort of sickness is it? It's not a disease, not a plague or illness. It's focused solely on magic, on those dwelling in Prithian. Andrus was across the wall that day because I sent him to search for a cure. Can it hurt humans? My stomach twisted. Will it spread over the wall? Yes, he said. There is a chance of it affecting mortals in your territory. More than that, I don't know. It's slow moving and your kind is safe for now. We haven't had any progression in decades. Magic seems to have stabilized, even though it's been weakened. That he'd even admitted so much spoke volumes about how he imagined my future. I was never going home. Never going to encounter another human who I might spill this secret vulnerability. Oh my god. <laughs> Never going to encounter another human to whom I might spill this secret vulnerability. And so they continue talking. And she just kind of tries to get more information about this. And he kind of just shuts her down and says, uh, I'll see you at dinner. And it wasn't a request, so she's like, all right, I guess I'll just wander off. Um, and she goes, I wondered if any of the high fae would bother warning my kind. And it didn't take her time to learn that answer. So she gets this kind of disturbing, vague news uh, about the blight which she doesn't know what it is other than it's not a sickness but it's a drain on their power and it was 49 years ago and that's why the masks are on their faces so it's not just some fashion like they don't want the masks on their faces um and the next time they kind of talk about this too they refer to a mysterious she as the cause, but we don't learn this person's name or what they are. We just, they just say she. And so she's like, hmm. And so over the next few chapters, Varys starts trying to adjust to her new life, but she won't really allow herself to enjoy any of it due to the promise she made to her mother. Never mind if Tamlin said they were taken care of. And, you know, she feels like she abandoned her family and that she needs to find a way to protect them. She wants to write a letter to them, to warn them. 
This is where we discover that Feyre has never learned how to read or write. Um, her family lost her for- fortune when she was, you know, old enough to maybe start learning how to read and write. But it seems like her mother didn't try to get tutors to start teaching her before that point. Um, and so obviously after they lose their wealth, they don't have any tutors. And of course her family never noticed this or helped. So she doesn't know how to read or write. Um, she can't write them a note. She's really upset. Um, but you know, despite all this, she does find herself starting to bond a little bit with Alice and Lucian and even Tamlin a bit. Um, however, she needs more answers and Lucian tells her one day where they're going out on a hunt to try and keep her occupied because she was a hunter. So Tamlin keeps being like, take her on hunt. She likes hunting. Um, which she doesn't really want to go on the hunts, but she's like, I don't really know what else to do with myself. So sure, I'll go on this hunt. I'll at least get to see things. Maybe Lucian will tell me something important. Um, Lucian tells her of a creature that lives in the forest. If you trap it, will answer any questions you may have. It's called the Surreal. Now, uh, if you're listening, you can't see what I'm wearing, but I am wearing uh Akatar merch for the cereal. Um the cereal is one of my favorite creatures in the series. Uh it pops up a few times, but I have cereal tea house. The hottest tea in Perithian is what my sweatshirt says. And that's because truly if you ask this creature a question, if you have ensnared it and it's trapped, it will tell you anything you want to know. Now it might not give you a straight answer. But it'll spill some tea. And so I love the cereal. It's a really fun creature. I mean, it's not fun. We'll get to the description in a second. Um, But she's like, hmm, a creature that will tell me everything I need to know. Interesting. More answers that weren't answers. So there are fairies who will actually answer my question if you trap them. Maybe they know how to free me from the tree's terms. Yes, he said tightly, the cereal. But they're old and wicked and not worth the danger of going out to find them. And if you're stupid enough to keep looking so intrigued, I'm going to become rather suspicious and tell Tam to put you under house arrest. Though I suppose you would deserve it if you were indeed stupid enough to seek one out. So it's interesting because he tells her about the cereal and then he's like, but don't go looking for it. She's obviously going to go look for it. One thing about Feyre, or two things about Feyre. Uh, she does not listen to directions. You can't tell this bitch what to do, okay? She's going to do what she wants to do. On top of that, she's not very good at lying or concealing her feelings. (laughs) So (laughs) he obviously knows that she wants to go trap this thing, but he's the one who told her. So it's almost like he wants her to go, which is kind of weird. Maybe he just wants her to die. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But we don't really get more info about it or how to trap it because a new dark creature comes upon them as they're riding on this trail on their horses called the Bogue. And it seems as if more and more evil creatures are kind of coming into Spring Court lands later. um, So they avoid it. But later, Tamlin returns to the estate as Feyre wakes up from a nightmare. He's injured, just back from taking care of the Bogue. So he he got rid of it, but not without cost. 
So Feyre, despite her unwillingness to accept this new world, she tends to his wounds. And they're uh, kind of having a bonding moment here. Um, So Tamlin questions her hunting ability and her inability to write, telling her she's not what he expected of a human. Um, So he's kind of complimenting her here and also kind of taken aback that she wants to help him tend to his wounds. Um, Because even though he is magic and they do heal very fast because of the blight he doesn't heal as quickly especially from the bow so she goes and helps him um so the next morning Feyre longs to examine these paintings that are in this grand hall there's a bunch of beautiful art and she wants to go look at them because this bitch loves to paint uh but she overhears Lucian and Tamlin arguing about something arguing about the worsening blight Lucian accuses Tamlin of growing soft in spite of his heart of stone. Which is a very interesting turn of phrase. Uh, but Feyre's like, oh, I guess he's grumpy. I don't know. <laughs> so after this, you know, she's like, oh, there's too many questions. I need answers. So she goes to Lucian and he tells her how to trap the cereal and she sets off. So she gets a freshly killed chicken from the kitchen and lays it in a snare and waits. Now remember, Lucian warned her, don't go do it. And she, you know, of course, goes and does it. So the snare snaps and a creature is trapped. A face that looked like it had been crafted from dried, weather-borne bone. Its skin either forgotten or discarded. A lipless mouth and two long teeth held by blackened gums, slitted holes for nostrils and eyes. Eyes that were nothing more than swirling pits of milky white. The white of death, the white of sickness, the white of clean-picked corpses. Seeking above a ragged rock... Jesus Christ. Maybe I had too much wine. (laughs) Peeking above the ragged neck of its dark robes was a body of veins and bones, and dried and solid and horrific as texture of its face. It let go of the snare, its two long fingers clicked against each other as it studied me. Human it said, and its voice was at once and many, old and young, beautiful and grotesque. My bowels turned watery. Did you set this clever, wicked trap for me? Are you one of the surreal? I asked again, my words scarcely more than a ragged breath. Indeed I am. Click, click, click when its fingers against each other, one for each word. Then the trap was for you, I managed. Run, 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 she thinks to herself. So she starts asking the surreal questions, and because he's trapped, he has to tell her. She learns that Tamlin just isn't any fairy or any high fae, but he is one of the seven high lords of Prithian, ruler of the Spring Court. And she's kind of taken aback by this because, I mean, she's like, well, I guess I should have guessed because it was in this huge estate and he had people reporting to him, but she didn't really no, he was a high lord. Um, no one had told her that. <laughs> um, she also asks if there's truly no way for her to ever get home. And she tells, and the serial tells her that fairies actually can lie, but Tamlin didn't lie to her about this, uh, which also rocks her world because this whole time she thought that they couldn't lie to her, but apparently they can. So that sucks. <laughs> but Tamlin didn't lie to her about this. And he tells her, stay with the high lord. You will be safe. 
which is an interesting piece of info that she remembers, okay? Um, when Feyre asks about the cause of the blight, the serial tells her that there is another land called Highburn that is ruled by a king rather than the land being split up into courts. Remember from our map, there's Prithian, which has seven courts in it, and then off the coast of it, there's another country of Highburn. So the Fey have split it into multiple courts, so there's seven high lords, there isn't one ruler over them all. Um, they each have their own kind of little countries, if you will. They have their own courts. Uh, but Highburn has a king. And the king is unhappy with the treaty that was signed with the humans, which allowed them to no longer be slaves and have lands of their own. And so a hundred years ago, he sent his most trusted commanders and killers to the human and fairy lands to begin waging a war. As spies, lovers, and courtiers, they inflated... Oh my god infiltrated the courts and gathered enough information that the king could make his plan to take over but one of his commanders disobeyed and they now call them the deceiver but she doesn't really get to learn much more else because suddenly the fey creatures called the naga burst in and they are dark evil creatures intent on killing them um they're really nasty she does not describe them as nice she describes them as terrifying and they're closing in to kill her and the Surreal. And the Surreal's pleading with her, let me go. Because remember, she's trapped him in a snare. So he can't escape. So he's just like waiting prey for these things. And even though she could just run away and save herself here. And even though she's terrified of the Surreal, she fires an arrow that severs the snare. And it sets the Surreal free. So he gets a head start. Now the Nagger are here. And she is fighting for her life against them, taking some down, but they're gaining on her. Now, Lucian had said, if you get yourself killed out there, I'm not coming to get you. But she had hoped that because he knew she was going to get the cereal that he would have been paying attention. But Lucian doesn't show up. No one shows up. So she's racing through the forest, firing arrows. She's fighting for her life. Uh, and then Tamlin bursts through. He's returned from his patrol on the borders, and he heard her screams. And together they fight and take out the rest of the Naga together, or at least fight off enough of them where the rest run away. Now, on their way back, Tamlin and Feyre eventually have a conversation about how she wants to go home due to her promise to her mom. Again, this family, that sucks and does not care about her, but she can't let herself do anything because, oh my god, what's going to happen to the family? And he tells her he can't send her home, but that he's made sure her family is well provided for and he has altered their memories so that they just think she's gone to live with a rich dying aunt that they only recently found it existed. It's kind of like that, oh, I got an inheritance from a distant relative I didn't know about type of deal. Um, knowing that she isn't breaking the promise to her mom now because her family is being cared for, she relaxes a bit. And she starts to let herself indulge a bit in what's around her. She even begins to think about letting herself paint again. <laughs> so we're not even painting yet. She's, she's letting herself think about the possibility of painting. So that's great. <laughs> Uh, but things aren't really super happy for long. Um, one night after this, she's awoken from a nightmare, which she's been having a lot of nightmares. She doesn't really sleep well. 
Um, and she hears screams downstairs. She jumps out of bed and finds a lesser fae being carried in by Tamlin. And the fae is screaming and bleeding profusely. He was dumped on their borders, and he's from the summer court, they find out. His wings have been brutally cut off. And it is not a pretty sight. My wings, the fairy choked out, his glossy black eyes wide and staring at nothing. She took my wings. Again, that nameless she who haunted their lives. If she wasn't ruling the spring court, then perhaps she ruled another. Tamlin flicked a hand, and steaming water and bandages just appeared on the table. My mouth dried up, but I reached the bottom of the stairs and kept walking toward the table and the death that was surely hovering in this hall. She took my wings, said the fairy. She took my wings, he repeated, clutching the edge of the table with spindly blue fingers. Now, when we talk about his wings being taken, um, they weren't just taken. They'd been ripped off. And... Feyre describes these wounds as jagged, cartilage and tissue severed in what looked like uneven cuts, as if she'd sawed off his wings bit by bit. Uh, terrifying. So up to this point, we haven't really had a lot of violence happening. We've been talking about the blight, but we don't really know what it is. And we really get slapped in the face with the brutality of whoever this she is that is called the blight. Now, unfortunately, Tamlin can't heal him with his powers due to the Blight's drain on them. Uh, so they're kind of rushing around, but it's pretty evident that this fairy is going to die. I brushed the long, damp hair from the fairy's half-turned face, revealing a pointed nose and a mouthful of sharp teeth. His dark eyes shifted to mine, beseeching, pleading. It will be all right, I said, and hoped he couldn't smell lies the way the cereal was able to. I stroked his limp hair, its texture like liquid night. Another I would never be able to paint, but would try to, perhaps forever. We're really talking about painting right now? <sighs> okay. Anyway, it will be all right. The fairy closed his eyes, and I tightened my grip on his hand. Something wet touched my feet, and I didn't need to look down to see that his blood had pooled around me. My wings. The fairy whispered. You'll get them back. The fairy struggled to open his eyes. You swear? Yes, I breathed. The fairy managed a slight smile and closed his eyes again. My mouth trembled. I wished for something else to say, something more to offer him than empty promises. The first false vow I'd ever sworn. But Tamlin began speaking, and I glanced up to see him take the fairy's other hand. Cauldron save you, he said, reciting the words of a prayer that was probably older than the mortal realm. Mother hold you. Pass through the gates and smell that immortal land of milk and honey. Fear no evil. Feel no pain. Tamla's voice wavered, but he finished. Go. And enter eternity. The fairy heaved one final sigh, and his hand went limp in mine. I didn't let go, though, and kept stroking his hair, even when Tamlin released him and took a few steps from the table. So this is a really shocking scene. Um, like I said, we really just get punched in the face with the reality of this blight is, it seems like whoever this she is, she's torturing people 
and just dumping them almost to send a message. Um, so after this, Tamlin sends her to her rooms and has a private chat with Lucian. Um, but the next day, after this gruesome preview into the danger that's lurking in Prithian, Tamlin like, let's go on a field trip. Tamlin's like, come on, let's lighten up. So he takes Lucian and Fair on a little trip to try and bring their spirits back up from the terrors of the night before. He brings them to a beautiful glen, and there's a pond there made of starlight that he brings Fair to for a swim. So almost like a date. Interesting. Uh, and the tension has kind of been building a little bit between these two, but it really starts to heat up here in this scene. When I continued gaping at the pool, he laughed, drawing away my attention, only for me to find him unbuttoning his tunic. Jump in, he said, the invitation dancing in his eyes. A swim? Unclothed? Alone? With a high lord? I shook my head, falling back a step. His fingers paused at the second button from his collar. Also, she's already acting like this and he's only on the second button? Girl, mm, rein it in. Come on, Vera, pull it together. <laughs> Don't you want to know what it's like? I didn't know what he meant. Swimming in starlight or swimming with him? I, uh, no. All right. He left his tunic unbuttoned. There was only bare, muscled, golden skin beneath. Why this place, I asked, tearing my eyes away from his chest. This was my favorite haunt as a boy. So she goes on to try and, you know, ask him a little bit more about things, I think, to distract herself from, you know, Tamlin being shirtless, which apparently she's kind of interested in. And they keep talking, um... But he keeps, he keeps trying to ask her. He's like, come on, come, come swim with me. I didn't allow myself room for second guessing. And I took no small amount of pride in the fact that my fingers didn't tremble once I removed my boots, then unbuttoned my tunic and pants and shucked them onto the grass. My undergarments were modest enough that I wasn't showing much, but I still looked straight at him as I stood on the grassy bank. The air was warm and mild. A soft breeze kissed its way across my bare stomach. Slowly, so slowly, his eyes roved down, then up, as if he were studying every inch, every curve of me. And even though I wore my ivory under things, that gaze alone stripped me bare. His eyes met mine and gave me a lazy smile before removing his clothes, button by button. I could have sworn that the gleam in his eyes turned hungry and feral, enough so that I had to look anywhere but at his face. I let myself indulge in the glimpse of a broad chest, arms corded with muscle and long, strong legs before I walked right into that pool. He wasn't built like Isaac, whose body had very much still been in that gangly place between boy and man. No. Tamlin's glorious body was honed by centuries of fighting and brutality. Okay, Feyre, girl. <laughs> um, so it seems like she might be interested, I don't know, in Tamlin. So crazy. Um, so they have their little swim, and obviously the tension is kind of heated up by them, but don't worry, Lucian's still there somewhere, so it doesn't go too far. 
Um, we also learn a bit more about Lucian while Favor's talking to Tamlin in this starlight pond. Um, he's from the Autumn Court, which is ruthless compared to Spring Court. Um, he was the youngest of all of his brothers, but they saw him as a dangerous competition due to the strength of his powers. Because when a High Lord dies and the powers transition into the new High Lord, it's not necessarily like a birth order thing. It goes to the strongest heir. And so he was seen as competition by his brothers who were ruthless. And Lucian didn't want to be a High Lord. Never mind deal with this. Um, and he never really fit in with his family. So Tamlin made him his emissary to give Lucian a way to get out of that court, away from his violent family, right? He didn't want to be a high lord there, but his brothers probably would have killed him to ensure that he couldn't be. Because like Tamlin, doesn't sound like Tamlin really wanted to be a high lord, which we'll learn more about later. But you don't have a choice. If you're the high lord, you're the high lord. Um, and while they're on this outing, Feyre even crafts a couple of jokes, which uh, take them by surprise. Like, they can't believe that she's joking because she's usually just so, like, sullen and, and depressed, which, fair, she's healing. Um, so she isn't fully healed, but she's on the mend, and everyone's kind of in a good mood. After this, Tamlin gets her paints and supplies and shows her a large gallery that's in his estate. And she's taken aback by this kindness. Um... He seems happy to be able to do this, something for her, and she starts to paint. She let herself paint. We're here. We're finally here. This bitch is finally painting. We're like a third of the way through this book, and she's been talking about painting the whole time. <laughs> and she's finally painting. She's finally healed herself enough, and she's happy enough where she feels like she can. So weeks go by and she's just painting up a storm. She's got paint on her clothes. She's got paint on herself. Whatever. Uh, and she remembers the advice from the serial. Stay with the High Lord and you'll be safe. So she does exactly that. And she kind of carries on for a little bit, but doesn't last forever as she once again gets upset that she's starting to forget about her family. They're glamored, right? So that, that basically means that the Fae have put their magic on them to change how they're perceiving things. Um, they're glamored and they probably aren't even thinking about her, right? Because they think she's off with some dying rich aunt and they're all rich again. So great. She's like, they probably aren't even thinking about me. Um, but Tamlin had let her get comfortable enough to forget them. So that night at dinner, she's a moody bitch and can't really blame her. Um, but I'm like, just let this family go. They suck. I don't want to hear about the family and I don't want to hear about the painting, but okay, I get these are important things <laughs> to her. So she's mooning at dinner and she leaves to go get a walk and she ends up in this rose garden. Tamlin finds her there and tells her it was a mating present from his father to his mother, which we don't really learn more about mating just yet, but we will, I think, the next day. Um, but we understand that mating is a really important thing to face society, important enough where he gave her an entire rose garden for being his mate. She cuts her hand on a rose thorn, and Tamlin kisses it to heal it. Ooh, and then he kind of, like, lets her go on her way. So the next day, is kind of, you know, trying to get a bit closer to Tamlin, right? They seem like they have an interest in each other. Um, and so Tamlin follows Feyre out to the woods, which she knows that he's doing, and she lays, she lays a little snare to catch him. 
But the whole scene feels very playful um, because I think he lets himself get caught in it. And then they're kind of joking around. He reads her some limericks that he wrote her using the list of words she had written in the study in one of her attempts to learn how to read. So he finds this list that she threw away in frustration and writes all these little limericks for her, which is really cute. Um, We also learn about the concept of mates here. It's a magical bond that snaps into place, it's been described, between two fae that are equally matched. And it's very respected in fae society. Um, It's almost regarded, like, above the law and above social norms. Um, However, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a happy ending. So it means that, yes, these two are equally matched up, like, biologically, like, they're mates. But it doesn't mean that it's going to end in love. Um, Because Pharaoh's kind of asking if they have marriage. And he's like, we don't really have marriage. People don't usually get married. I guess they kind of do. But there's this thing called mating. And he kind of goes through that. Um, Tamlin also tells her about the cruelty of his father and his brothers. So he's opening up to her. He's talking about his past. Um, And so his father and brothers are dead. But Tamlin had never wanted his father's title, so he became a warrior. Because he was like, well, I don't want to be a high lord, so I'll go be a warrior. Uh, But his family was killed by a different court. He doesn't say who. But when that happened, Tamlin became a high lord. And he did not want to be one. So again, like, Lucian doesn't want to be a high lord, but his dad's still around, so we don't really know who's going to pass to Tamlin doesn't want to be a high lord. Who wants to be a high lord? Is it that bad? I don't know. It doesn't, I guess, sound that fun. I'd rather just be like a rich high fae that doesn't have responsibilities. But, you know, Tamlin doesn't want to be a high lord. Okay. So on their way back, Feyre sees large bonfires being built. And Tamlin tells her it's in preparation for Kalamai, or Fire Night. Um, He tells her this is a ceremony that generates magic that sustains the land for the year. So it's kind of like a spring celebration, and so that's why it's hosted at the spring court. However, he tells Feyre she's not invited and warns her to stay away from all the fairies during the holiday, saying it's dangerous. And so obviously Feyre doesn't like that. Like, she's like, we've just been getting closer. Like, we just had this nice chat, almost like a little date. And now you're telling me I can't go to the party? And he doesn't tell her why. He just is like, it's dangerous. Um, so she doesn't like that. The ceremony generates magic that sustains the land for the year. Um, and she doesn't really get why she can't go. Um, but before she can really protest, they enter the garden and Tamla tells Feyre to hide. Lucian joins Tamlin and they face an invisible foe. Talking about the mysterious woman who holds their fate in their hands. So Feyre can't see this creature because I think um, Tamlin glamours her so she can't see it and he can't see her. But she can hear it and I think she can smell it and it is not good. It describes, she describes just pure terror running through her. And before the creature leaves, it expresses surprise that Tamlin feels such fear in spite of his heart of stone. Hmm. That phrase again. Very specific. <laughs> and so it leaves, and Tamron tells Pharaoh that it was the adder, a creature who lives up to the terrifying myths humans believe about fairies. Hmm. 
So the next day, everyone's prepping for Kalanmai, and she's still not invited. She feels like the girl being left behind from the ball. Everyone's kind of, like, flitting about doing things, and she's trying to help out, but she kind of gets shooed away. So she's like, ask Alice if she can help. She says no. She goes and asks the kitchen if she can help. They're kind of like, you're in my way. Get, get out of here. So night comes, and no one's really left in the house. It's pretty empty. But she hears the drums from the ceremony start. The drumbeats came from far away, beyond the garden, past the game park, into the forest that lay beyond. They were deep, probing, a single beat echoed by two responding calls, summoning. I stood by the doors to the garden, staring out over the property as the sky became awash in hues of orange and red. In the distance, upon the sloping hills that led into the woods, a few fires flickered, plumes of dark smoke marring the screwy sky the unlit bonfires I'd spotted two days ago. Not invited, I reminded myself. Not invited to whatever party had all the kitchen fairies tittering and laughing among one another. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> but I'm not mad. <laughs> the drums turned faster, louder. Though I'd grown accustomed to the smell of magic, my nose pricked with the rising tang of metal, stronger than I'd sensed yet. I took a step forward, then halted on the threshold. I should go back in. Behind me, the setting sun stained the black and white tiles of the hall, a shimmering shade of tangerine, and my long shadow seemed to pulse to the beat of the drums. Even the garden, usually buzzing with the orchestra of its denizens, had quieted to hear the drums. There was a string, a string t t tied to my gut, that pulled me towards those hills, commanding me to go, to go hear the fairy drums. I might have done just that had Tamlin not appeared from down the hall. So she's like, I know I'm not invited, but she feels these drums calling to her and she's almost about to go. And then Tamlin's there. Boo. <laughs> However, he's looking hot. So let's see what Farrah thinks about that. <laughs> He was shirtless, with only the baldric across his muscled chest. The pummel of his sword glinted golden in the dying sunlight, and the feathered tops of arrows were stained red as they poked above his broad shoulder. I stared at him, and he watched me back. The warrior incarnate. Where are you going? I managed to get out. It's Kalan Mai, he said flatly. I have to go. He jerked his chin to the fires and drums. To do what? I asked, glancing at the bow in his hand. My heart echoed the drums outside, building into a wilder beat. His green eyes were shadowed beneath the gilded mask. As a high lord, I have to partake in the great rite. What's the great... Go to your chamber, he snarled, and glanced toward the fires. Lock your doors, set up a snare, whatever you do. Why? I demanded. The adder's voice snaked through my memory. Tamlin had said something about a fairy ritual. What the hell was it? <laughs> From the weapons? It had to be brutal and violent, especially if Tamlin's beast form wasn't weapon enough. Just do it. His canines began to lengthen. My heart leapt into a gallop. Don't come out until morning. Stronger, faster, the drums beat, and the muscles in Tamlin's neck quivered as if standing still were somehow painful to him. Are you going into battle? I whispered, and he let out a breathy laugh. 
He lifted a hand as if to touch my arm, but he lowered it before his fingers could graze the fabric of my tunic. Stay in your chamber, Feyre. But I, please. Before I could ask him to reconsider bringing me along, he took off running. The muscles in his back shifted as he leaped down the short flight of stairs and bounded into the garden, as spry and swift as a stag. Within seconds, he was gone. So, she's like, all right. I guess I'll do what I'm told. So she goes, and she sits up in a room. But, you know, not for long, because Feyre doesn't do what she's told. Can't keep a gal down. I think she makes it until, like, ten at night. <laughs> so maybe three hours. <laughs> And so she sneaks out concealed in a cloak and she gets on her horse. Um, she doesn't even really need to tell it where to go. It also follows the drums to the ceremony. And she walks around among hundreds of fae from various courts. And she sees them all lined up creating a pathway to this like cave thing. And it has like pelts on the ground. Um, but she doesn't really know what for. And she's like, I probably shouldn't go in that cave, huh? So she meanders through the crowd still not really knowing what this is or why she was banned from going. She's like, it just seems like a bonfire and drums. Like, I don't, everyone's just kind of around. She knows there was food somewhere. She saw them making it in the kitchen. So she's like, ah, I don't really know why everyone's all on edge. Like, come on guys, chill out. Um, and they kind of don't really handle it well. Right. Like they kind of treat her with kid gloves and they're just like, go, it's dangerous. Go stay in your room. Don't come out. Where the parents would know what's best is what it feels like. And she does not respond well to that. So obviously she sneaks out. She doesn't understand why she's been banned for going. And just then someone grabs her arm. Three fae circle her. And they are not friendly. They can tell she's a human and question her. They kind of start to corral her off away from the crowd. And it's very clear that they intend to hurt her. Once the rites performed, we'll have some fun, won't we? A treat, such a treat to find a human woman here. I bared my teeth at him. Get your hands off me, I said, loud enough for anyone to hear. One of them ran a hand down my side, its bony fingers digging into my ribs, my hips. I jerked back only to slam into the third one, who wove his long fingers through my hair and pressed close. No one looked. No one noticed. Stop it, I said, but the words came out in a strangled gasp as they began herding me towards the line of trees, towards the darkness. I pushed and thrashed against them. They only hissed. One of them pushed me and I staggered, falling out of their grasp. The ground welled up beneath me and I reached for my knives, but sturdy hands grasped me under the shoulders before I could draw them or hit the grasp. They were strong hands warm and broad, not at all like the prodding bony fingers of the three fairies who went utterly still as whoever caught me gently set me upright. There you are. I've been looking for you, said a deep, sensual male voice I've never heard. But I kept my eyes on the three fairies, bracing myself for flight as the male behind me stepped to my side and slipped a casual arm around my shoulders. The three lesser fairies paled, their dark eyes wide. Thank you for finding her for me, my savior said to them, smooth and polished. 
enjoy the right. There was enough of a bite beneath his last words that the fairy stiffened. Without further comment, they scuttled back to the bonfires. I stepped out of the shelter of my savior's arm and turned to thank him. Standing before me was the most beautiful man I'd ever seen. (laughs) So, all right, I need to pause for a second. (laughs) Because let's just talk about the scene for a second. It's terrifying. It's very clear. And I mean, Mass doesn't like literally write it out, but it's very clear that these three fae were taking her into the forest to assault her and probably torture her and then murder her. Um, So that's terrifying. And she's getting herded by these three fae and they're like slowly and slowly like bringing her out towards the forest where she knows if she gets to the forest, there's no coming back. She's going to die, which is terrifying. And then this mysterious man steps in and pretends to know her and all the other fae are instantly terrified of him. And when she turns around and she describes him as the most beautiful man she's ever seen, I was like, what? Wait, what about Tamlin? (laughs) I was like, I thought we were like falling in love with Tamlin, but you're describing this other man as the most beautiful man you've ever seen? interesting (laughs) so she goes everything about the stranger radiated sensual grace and ease high fey no doubt his short black hair gleamed like a raven's feathers offsetting his pale skin and blue eyes so deep they were violet even in the firelight they twinkled with amusement as he beheld me for a moment we said nothing Thank you didn't seem to cover what he'd done for me, but something about the way he stood with absolute stillness, the night seeming to press in closer around him, made me hesitate to speak, made me want to run in the other direction. He, too, wasn't wearing a mask. From another court, then. A half-smile played on his lips. What's a mortal woman doing here on fire night? His voice was a lover's purr that sent shivers through me, caressing every muscle and bone and nerve. I took a step back. My friends brought me. (laughs) I've said it before and I'll say it again. Fair is not good at lying, okay? So I just can't help but laugh at how unsettled she is by this mystery man who she's obviously like, he's so hot, but scary hot. And she's, like, intrigued by him, but terrified by him at the same time. And so she's so frazzled. She's like, oh, my my friends brought me. Because, like, yeah, fairies are usually friends with humans. And they would definitely bring you to the ceremony, it sounds like. Right? That's believable. (laughs) The drumming was increasing in tempo, building to a climax I didn't understand. It had been so long since I'd seen a bare face that looked even vaguely human. Because remember... Everyone at the spring court has those stupid masks stuck to their face. His clothes, all black, all finely made, were cut close enough to his body that I could see how magnificent he was. As if he'd been molded from night itself. (laughs) I can't help but giggle when I read this. Oh my god, I love it. Um, So he goes, and who are your friends? He was still smiling at me, a predator sizing up prey. Two ladies. I lied again. (laughs) Feyre, 
Learn how to lie. Oh, my God. <laughs> Their names? He prowled closer, slipping his hands into his pockets. I retreated a little more and kept my mouth shut. Had I just traded three monsters for something far worse? When it became apparent I wouldn't answer, he chuckled. You're welcome, he said, for saving you. <laughs> I bristled at his arrogance, but retreated another step. I was close enough to the bonfire, to that little hollow where the fairies were all gathered, that I could make it if I sprinted. Maybe someone would take pity on me. Maybe Lucian or Alice were there. Strange for a mortal to be friends with two fairies, he mused, and began circling me. I could have sworn tendrils of star-kissed night trailed in his wake. Aren't humans usually terrified of us? And aren't you, for that matter, supposed to keep to your side of the wall? <laughs> I was terrified of him, but I wasn't about to let him know. I've known them my whole life. I've never had anything to fear from them. This lie makes no sense. <laughs> I get so mad every time, like, Feyre tries to be coy in these books, because I'm like, you're not good at it. <laughs> he paused his circling, and now stood between me and the bonfire, and my escape route. And yet, they brought you to the Great Right and abandoned you. They went to get refreshments, I said, and his smile grew. Whatever I'd just said had given me away. I'd spotted the servants hauling off the food, but... Maybe it wasn't here. He smiled for a heartbeat longer. I had never seen anyone so handsome. She mentions again. <laughs> for the second time. <laughs> and never had so many warning bells peeled in my head because of it. He's so hot that he's terrifying. <laughs> I'm afraid the refreshments are a long way off, he said, coming closer now. It might be a while before they return. May I escort you somewhere in the meantime? He removed a hand from his pocket to offer his arm. He'd been able to scare off those fairies without lifting a finger. No, I said, my tongue thick and heavy. He waved his hand toward the hollow, toward the drums. Enjoy the right, then. Try to stay out of trouble. His eyes gleamed in a way that suggested staying out of trouble meant staying far, far away from him. Though it might have been the biggest risk I'd ever taken, I blurted, So you're not a part of the spring court? <laughs> Which I'm like, you were trying to get away from this guy. He's not wearing a mask. You already know the answer to this. But yet, she is so nervous that she just blurts out this question. He returned to me, every movement exquisite and as laced with lethal power. But I held my ground as he gave me a lazy smile. Do I look like I'm a part of the spring court? The words were tinged with an arrogance that only an immortal could achieve. He laughed under his breath. <laughs> no, I'm not a part of the noble spring court. I'm glad of it. He gestured to his face, where a mask might go. I should have walked away, should have shut my mouth. Well, why are you here, then? The man's remarkable eyes seemed to glow, with enough of a deadly edge that I backed up a step. Because all the monsters have been let out of their cages tonight no matter what court they belong to. So I may roam wherever I wish until the dawn. More riddles and questions to be answered. I mean, girl, it's the fae. Like, what, what are you expecting? <laughs> but I'd had enough. 
especially as his smile turned cold and cruel. Enjoy the right, I repeated as blandly as I could. And so she kind of hurries back to the hollow, too aware that she's putting her back to him, but she's grateful because she then loses herself in the crowd that's been milling around this path to the cave. They're all still waiting for some moment to occur, and for the life of her, she cannot figure it out. And so she kind of stops, finally stops shaking from this little interaction with this unnamed beautiful man. Because <laughs> she never asked his name. She asked if he was from the spring court when he obviously wasn't. But she doesn't ask his name. So, you know. And then she's kind of walking through. She's making eye contact with a bunch of them. Um, most of them wore masks. But, you know, there were some kind of like that lethal stranger, as she describes him, um, that weren't wearing masks. So it's kind of like people from every quarter here, right? And she's still like, I don't know what I'm doing, why people are here, why I couldn't go. She's making eye contact with a bunch of people. And then she makes eye contact with one fae who has one eye shining bright as his red hair and the other was metal. And the eyes go wide and he realizes Feyre's there and Feyre realizes it's Lucian. She has been caught. Have you lost your senses? Lucian shouted above the drums. His ghost, his face was ghostly pale. What are you doing here? And so none of the other fairies really notice this. It seems like they're all still very sucked into whatever they're waiting for to happen. And so he kind of just throws her over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes and starts sprinting so fast that at first she tries to protest, but then she gets so nauseous from how fast he's moving that she just kind of lets it happen. And then that he brings her all the way back to the manor, which, mind you, she rode a horse out here and he just ran her ass back, like fireman style. And he kind of just dumps her on the floor of the manor. And he's like, you stupid mortal. Didn't he tell you to stay in your room? And she's kind of like, but it was hardly anything. Like, she's trying to, it's like when a kid gets caught at a party in high school and the parents, like, dragging them out. She's like, but it wasn't doing anything. He's like, that wasn't even the ceremony. He's like, oh my god, if Tam found you there. And she's like, so what? She's like, why won't you guys tell me what happens at this goddamn ceremony? What is the big deal? And they're, like, shouting at each other. And he goes, it's the great right. Didn't anyone tell you what it is? And she's kind of silent. And Lucian's like, oh. I guess no one told you what it is. He goes, fire night signals the official start of spring. In Prithian, as well as in the mortal world. And she says his words were calm, but he kind of trembles. And he kind of keeps looking back to the ritual and she kind of says she leans against the wall to force herself into a casualness that she doesn't feel uh knowing favorite probably did not look very casual uh, <laughs> and he goes here our crops depend upon the magic we regenerate on cal and my tonight and she's not really picking up what he's putting down and so he continues on saying, we do this by conducting the great rite. Each of the seven high lords of Prithian performs this every year. Since their magic comes from the earth and returns to it at the end, it's a give and take. And she's still not picking up what he's putting down. And so he 
continues, tonight Tam will allow great and terrible magic to enter his body. The magic will seize control of his mind, his body, his soul, and turn him into the hunter. It will fill him with his sole purpose, to find the maiden. From their coupling, magic will be released and spread to the earth, where it will regenerate life for the year to become. My face became hot, and I felt, and I fought the urge to fidget. So, uh, she finally realizes what he has to, like, painfully put very bluntly, is the ritual is for Tamlin and the other High Lords, but especially Tamlin, because he's High Lord of the Spring Court, to basically get filled up with this magic so much where he's kind of going to be an animal and he has to go find a maiden and fuck her so good that the magic returns to the earth and they get crops for the year. (laughs) So I think it uh, was for a really good reason that Tamlin didn't want her there. Because Lucian goes on to say, Tonight, Tam won't be the fairy you know. He won't even know his name. The magic will consume everything in him but that one basic command and need. <laughs> and so Farah's first question is, "Who, Who's the maiden? <laughs> and Lucian snorts at this because it's so thinly veiled why she's asking it. No one knows until it's time. After Tam hunts down the white stag and kills it for the sacrificial offering, he'll make his way to that sacred cave, where he'll find the path lined with fairy females waiting to be chosen as his mate for tonight. What? (laughs) So that line of fairies that she walked by earlier in that cave with some pelts on the ground? Yeah, they're waiting to be picked to go get dicked down by Tamlin in the cave. And Lucian laughs at her because he he's picking up on her little crush on Tamlin and her difficulty uh, processing this. <laughs> so he laughs and he goes, yes, all those female fairies around where you were were females for Tamlin to pick. It's an honor to be chosen, but it's his instincts that select her. And she goes, but, but you were there and other male fairies. And now she's blushing so much that she begins to sweat. <laughs> Ah, Lucian chuckles. Well, Tam's not the only one who gets to perform the rite tonight. Once he makes his choice, we're free to mingle. Though it's not the great rite, our own dalliances tonight will help the land too. You're lucky I found you when I did, though, he said. Because he would have smelled you and claimed you. But it wouldn't have been Tamlin who brought you into that cave. And I don't think you would have liked it. Tonight is not for lovemaking. So... Feyre's kind of, like, getting over her trying to play coy and act like she doesn't have a crush on Tamlin. Lucian's very clearly telling her, yes, I know how you feel about him, and I know why you want to be there, but I'm telling you, girlfriend, you don't want to be there. It's not going to be a nice night. You're not going to have fun. Um, He's going to be an animal, and he doesn't want to do that to you. So that's why he said you couldn't go. And... It made her sick, the thought of Tamlin forcing her, that magic could strip away any sense of self or right or wrong. But hearing that, that some feral part of him wanted me. My breath was painful. So, um, it seems like she's almost, uh, into it. (laughs) Uh, so he tells her to stay in her room and no matter who comes knocking, keep the door locked and don't come out until morning. And so she kind of takes the advice. She takes it better than the first time they tried to get her stay in her room. 
<laughs> so at point at some point she's sitting at her vanity and she dozes off and she wakes up the moment the drums stop. A shuddering silence went through the house and the hair on my arms arose as magic swept past me, rippling outward. Though I tried not to, I thought about the probable source and blushed, even as my chest tightened. I glanced at the clock. It was past two in the morning. <laughs> so uh, that shudder was Tamlin coming. We're pretty sure. Uh. <laughs> well, he'd certainly taken his time with the ritual, which meant the girl was probably beautiful and charming and appealed to his instincts. <laughs> so Vera can't help but let her mind wander here, right? So she's obviously jealous. Um, I wondered whether she was glad to be chosen. Probably. She'd come to the hill of her own free will. And after all, Tamlin was a high lord and it was a great honor. And I suppose Tamlin was handsome. Terribly handsome. Even though I couldn't see the upper part of his face, his eyes were fine and his mouth beautifully curved and full. And then there was his body, which was... was I hissed and stood. So she kind of snaps herself out of it. Uh, but she's obviously really jealous of whoever got to be dicked down by Tamlin tonight. Scary animal Tamlin. And she wishes it was her. But she's also just kind of like thrown off by how utterly absurd this whole thing is. And then she kind of looks over to her door where she had set up some snares, which she usually locks her door every night. Um, but she had put extra snares in front of the door just in case. And she's kind of like, this is ridiculous. That This would not have protected me from anything. So she's kind of like, what was I getting all upset about? Like, ugh. So she takes it all down. And she goes to the empty kitchen and she eats. So she looks stress eats, I think. She's eating her feelings here. She gobbles down half a loaf of bread, an apple, and a lemon tart. And then she grabs a chocolate cookie. And she walks to her little painting room. Because she's like, I need to get some of these images out of my head. Even if I have to paint by candlelight. Which, oh my god, the painting! Anyway. <laughs> so she's like, she's got to keep herself busy. Whether it's eating or painting or whatever. She just doesn't really want to think about what's happening. Going somewhere? Tamlin asked. His voice was not entirely of this world. I suppressed a shudder. Midnight snack, I said. <laughs> Which I think is a hilarious response. During this whole, like, sex ritual thing. And she's like, uh, midnight snack? <laughs> and I was keenly aware of every movement, every breath I took as I neared him. And so here we go. Buckle up. Um, if you don't want to hear me read a little almost sexy scene, then skip this. But his bare chest was painted with whirls of dark blue woad. And from the smudges in the paint, I knew exactly where he'd been touched. I tried not to notice that they descended past his muscled midriff. Ooh. I was about to pass him when he grabbed me so fast that I didn't see anything until he had me pinned against the wall. The cookie dropped from my hand as he grasped my wrist. I smelled you, he breathed, his painted chest rising and falling so close to mine. I searched for you, and you weren't there. He reeked of magic. When I looked into his eyes, remnants of power flickered there. No kindness, none of the wry humor and gentle reprimands. The Tamlin I knew was gone. Let go. I said as evenly as I could, but his claws punched out, embedding in the wood above my hands. Still riding the magic, he was half wild. You drove me mad, he growled, and the sound trembled down my neck along my breasts until they ached. 
So even though Feyre is like, I'm so disgusted by this ritual, and this is animal Tamlin, and it's not my Tamlin, she's still getting uh, turned on by this, which, I mean, can you blame her? (laughs) I searched for you, and you weren't there. When I didn't find you, he said, bringing his face closer to mine until we shared breath, it made me pick another. I couldn't escape. I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to. Girl, we know you don't want to escape, okay? You're lying to yourself. But that's fine. We're in her head. She asked me not to be gentle with her either, he snarled. His teeth bright in the moonlight. He brought his lips to my ear. I would have been gentle with you, though. I shuddered as I closed my eyes. Every inch of my body went taut as his words echoed through me. I would have had you moaning my name throughout it all. And I would have taken a very, very long time. Feyre. He said my name like a caress, and his hot breath tickled my ear. My back arched slightly. He ripped his claws free from the wall, and my knees buckled as he let go. I grasped the wall to keep from sinking to the floor, to keep from grabbing him. To strike a caress? I didn't know. I think we know. (laughs) I opened my eyes. He still smiled. Smiled like an animal. Why should I want someone's leftovers, I said. So she's playing hard to get. That's, that's what she's decided in this moment. I said, making a push, making the, oh my God, making the push him away. He grabbed my hands and again, bit my neck. I cried out as his teeth clamped onto the tender spot where my neck met my shoulder. I couldn't move, couldn't think. My world narrowed to the feeling of his lips and teeth against my skin. He didn't pierce my flesh, but rather bit to keep me pinned. The push of my body against his, the hard and the soft, Made me see red, see lightning, made me grind my hips against his. I should hate him, hate him for his stupid ritual for the female he'd been with tonight. His bite lingered, but it lightened, and his tongue caressed the places his teeth had been. He didn't move, he just remained in that spot, kissing my neck. Intently, territorially, lazily, heat pounded between my legs, and as he ground his body against mine, against every aching spot, a moan slipped past my lips. Girl, I think he's got you now. Uh-oh. He jerked away. The air was bitingly cold against my freed skin, and I panted as he stared at me. Don't ever disobey me again, he said. His voice a deep purr that ricocheted through me, awakening everything and lulling it into complicity. Then I reconsidered his words and straightened. He grinned at me in that wild way. And my hand connected with his face. So she slaps him. Don't tell me what to do, I breathed, my palms stinging. And don't bite me like some enraged beast. (laughs) So they have this little interaction. And even though she just slapped him and is like acting mad at him. In her head, she's still thinking about how his body was touching hers. And how she wanted him everywhere. And he kind of just sniffs her a little bit and growls and then prowls away. And she goes back to bed. Really interesting interaction, Feyre. Really really good at acting cool through that. Really, really weren't showing that you wanted that at all. <laughs> and so then the interaction they all have the next morning is pretty funny. So everyone's back to normal, right? The rite's been performed. Normal Tamlin's back. 
she wakes up and she's getting herself dressed and she's braiding her hair and she realizes that she has a huge old hickey from where Animal Tamlin bit her last night. And she starts going through her drawers to see if, like, there's a scarf or something she can hide it with. Like, what I'm not going to say I did in high school, but, like, definitely did in high school. And she's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not hiding this. I'm going to go and they're going to have to look at the fact that Tamlin gave me this huge hickey. And they're going to have to live with it. Because she's acting, like, mad, which, again, I'm like, girl, you liked it. (laughs) but okay and so she comes in and Tamlin tries to act all cool but Lucian chokes on his breakfast when he sees it and Tamlin's kind of like well if she can't do what she's told she has to deal with the consequences which Feyre's like uh fuck you and they kind of have a little playful argument about it and in her head she pictures painting them as pigs which she does And she admits to herself that she's happy for the first time. And honestly, as long as she can remember. And this is truly a shift in Feyre's character. So this whole time, she's like not happy. She's really sad. She's worried about her family. She's trying to figure out how to get home to them, whatever. Like complaining about wanting to paint. I don't know. So now she's actually happy. And realizes it. And so Alice even notices this shift because she's happy and she's starting to feel in love. And that night she wants to look feminine. Which this whole time she's wanted tunics the whole time. And Alice is always like, you want to wear a dress? And she's like, no. I want a tunic so I could run around and be, you know, lethal. Which I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. But... It's not that she didn't want to be feminine. It's the fact that she didn't think she could afford to be feminine because she had to survive this whole time. So it's truly a shift for her character to want to wear a gown and try and look pretty. Because now she's at the stage of girl with a crush where she really wants to get attention. She really is starting to dress up because she's like, I want Tamlin to see me because she's starting to fall for him. So she walks in, and mind you, she hasn't worn a dress the entire time she's been there. So she wears this beautiful gown, her hair is all done, Alice really went to town because she was so excited, she finally got to, like, give Feyre a little makeover. And also because she's been eating, right? When she came here, she was starving. So she was frail, and she's been eating now, and so she's kind of filling out, and she's you know, not looking sickly anymore. And she has warmth back to her face and her features and she has feminine curves. So she's hot and she knows it. So she walks into dinner and (laughs) Tamlin and Lucian are there and Lucian's kind of like, oh, well, I have something really important I have to go do and just like leaves. (laughs) Because he sees Feyre in the dress and he's like, I gotta go. They're gonna have a moment and I don't want to mess it up. So he's a good friend and he leaves. And Tamlin tells her that she's beautiful and Favor believes him. You know, she feels feminine for the first time in years and she's happy. And so she decides to bring him to the gallery, her paint gallery, which she has kept locked with the key that he gave her, which he was like, oh, I didn't know you actually locked it. And she was like, yeah, I don't want anyone seeing my stuff. Um, Because everything she paints is moments from her life. So it's really raw for her to be able to show someone else this. And I think it's pretty thinly veiled, but it's a metaphor for her life. 
She's kept her past locked up. She has not let anyone in. But in this moment, she decides to unlock the door and let Tamlin in. And she says, I have something for you. She had made a painting for him. And he stopped to look at it, but he also looks around at all the other paintings that she's made. And he kind of pinpoints these different points of her life through the paintings. And um, they talk about them, right? And so she lets him into her past. She finds out, or he finds out that she was there when her father was beat by those merchant thugs. And she witnessed him getting his, you know, knee smashed to bits. Um... She, he goes through all of these moments and he finds a painting that she made of the Glen with the Starlight Pond. And even though she had painted something else for him, he's like, I want this one. She's like, but it's not that good. And he goes, no, it reminds me I'm not alone. I want this one. So I guess it's nice that he wanted one that was like a special moment between them. But I feel like if someone makes you something, you should probably like, take the one that she made for you but I don't know <laughs> and she notes and so, you know they talk some more and then she goes to bed and she notes that for the first time since she's been there she doesn't lock her bedroom door when she goes to sleep Ooh, Farrah it's almost like do you want someone to come in hmm so the next day he takes her out to a field it's not a glen but it's still very beautiful and he kind of dozes off next to her as they're like laying in this beautiful field and he tells her that, you know, it's the singing of the willow. It always puts him to sleep. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, she's like, I can't hear anything. And he asks, do you want to see and hear the world that I do? And she's like, well, it'll cost me something, right? Because it's the fae. They always make their bargains. And he goes, it'll cost you a kiss. <laughs> And she's like, no, 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 I can't kiss you. He's like, come on, it's beautiful. You gotta, you gotta experience it, right? Come on. But like, it's just a kiss. Come on, I gotta get something, but it's just a kiss. So she's like, okay. And so she prepares herself for this kiss. And she kind of sits up and Tamlin gets up on his knees. And he goes... Close your eyes, he said, and I obeyed, my fingers grappling onto the grass. The birds chattered and the willow branches sighed. The grass crunched as Tamlin rose up, and I braced myself with the brush of his mouth on one of my eyelids. Then on the other. He pulled away, and I was left breathless, the kisses still lingering on my skin. So, no, they don't make out. He kisses her eyes, and he basically removes a glamour from her. So the singing of the birds became an orchestra, a symphony of gossip and mirth. I'd never heard so many layers of music, never heard the variations and themes that wove between their arpeggios. And beyond the bird song, there was an ethereal melody, a woman, melancholy and weary, the willow. Gasping, I opened my eyes. And so she looks around and she's like, everything is richer. There's so much more beauty. She can almost like see rainbows flowing over things and there's shimmers and radiations and all of these things and it's just beautiful and there isn't like a tangy metallic stench anymore the smell of magic was now jasmine like lilac or roses and she comments again about how she'd never be able to paint it because you know it's so beautiful <laughs> can't get over the paint and she goes i looked to tamlin 
and my heart cracked entirely. It was Tamlin, but not. Rather, it was the Tamlin I'd dreamed of. His skin gleamed with a golden sheen, and around his head glowed a circlet of sunshine, and his eyes, not merely green and gold, but every hue and variation that could be imagined, as though every leaf in the forest had bled into one shade. This was a High Lord of Prithian. Devastatingly handsome, captivating, powerful beyond belief. My breath caught in my throat as I touched the contours of his mask. The cool metal bit into my fingertips, and the emerald slipped against my calloused skin. I lifted my other hand and gently grasped either side of the mask. I pulled slightly. It wouldn't move. He began smiling as I pulled again, and I blinked, dropping my hands. Instantly, the glowing, glowing Tamlin vanished, and one I knew returned. I could still hear the singing of the will and the birds, but she couldn't see, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous Tamlin anymore. So she questions it. She's like, well, why can't I see you like that anymore? And he's like, well, I put my glamour back on. And so he had removed a glamour that he had put on her. And so she could see all the magic around her now, but he still put his own glamour back on, which I think is for everyone, not just her. And she kind of questions it. And he's like, well, what you were seeing is what happens when you become a high lord. Not every other high fae looks as like beautiful as that. It's because of my power as a high lord. And sometimes it's just a lot easier to fit in. So he's like, I make myself look just like a normal high fae so I can fit in better. Because he's tortured. He doesn't want to be a high lord. Uh, he just wants to be a normal boy. <laughs> and so... They talk a little bit more and she's kind of just taking in the beauty and she kind of falls asleep. And the next morning she wakes up. And there's a woman made of tree bark in her room. And she's like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> She asks where Alice is. And the woman seems kind of annoyed. She's like, what are you talking about? She's like, where is Alice? Alice is usually here. And then she realizes the the woman of Bark is Alice. Tamlin's glamour had hid more than just the beauty of the land or the magic around her. Um, It already had hired... Oh my god, no, not hired. It's been a lot of talking today. (laughs) The glamour had hid not only the beauty around her, but it hid the fae around her to make it look more normal. He had made all of the fae around kind of look more just like high fae because that's easier for her to digest. So not only that, but she goes downstairs and sees that the halls are bustling with all sorts of different fae that she's never seen before because before she was like, it's kind of empty in here for a big estate. Like, sure, there was people around. She was like, I don't know. Like, shouldn't there be a bunch of servants? Or is it just that magical? I don't know. But no, there are a shit ton of servants. And they're all different kinds of fae. And they don't all look like high fae. There's all kinds of things. And then she realizes it's Tamlin's glamour. He had put this on her to help her transition into Prithian. Um, so that she wouldn't get like insanely freaked out and scared right away because it'd be too overwhelming. And because now she's comfortable and like settled in and she's been there for a while, he figured it's time to take off the glam right now. I would be really pissed off and she's not really pissed off. She's more mortified because also think about it. Think about all the things you do and how you carry yourself when you think you're alone. 
And she's now realizing that she doesn't actually know when she's been alone ever. There's probably always been like a servant or someone around where she like thought she was alone because she couldn't see or hear any of these things. And they were probably there. So she's probably like sitting there looking at the window, being all emotional, thinking about painting or something. And they're just standing there being like, what is this bitch doing? (laughs) So she's, she can't stay mad at him because he's like, yeah, I put that glamour over everyone in my court. So that's part of the reason why when the lesser fae from the summer court came, she could see that he had blue skin and didn't look like, um, the rest of the high fae because the glamour didn't affect him. Um, but he specifically put a glamour on the adder because the adder's not from his court and she couldn't see him, but he specifically put an extra one on him so that she would also be hidden from the adder. So she's not really mad at him and she's kind of just really embarrassed. (laughs) Um, and then the next morning she's just kind of going about her day. She goes into the garden and finds a head on a spike. So again, she's kind of just had these highs of, oh, these beautiful places. She thinks she's falling in love, maybe, and head on a spike. Really kind of ruins your morning. Um, But, you know, it is what it is. Tamlin's hands clamped on my shoulders as I turned back toward the head. It's not from the autumn court, Lucian said. I don't recognize him at all. Neither do I. A soft, vicious growl laced his words, but no claws pricked my skin as he kept gripping me. His hands tightened, though, while Lucian stepped into the small pool in which the statue stood, striding through the red water until he peered up at the anguished face. They branded him behind the ear with a sigil, Lucian said, swearing. A mountain with three stars. Night court, Tamlin said too quietly. The night court, if you remember from the map, which she has also seen a map of Prithian, The Night Court, the northernmost bit of Prithian, if I recalled the mural's map correctly. A land of darkness and starlight. Why? Why would they do this? I breathed. Tamlin let go, coming to stand at my side as Lucian climbed the statue to remove the head. It looked toward... No, I looked toward the blossoming crabapple tree instead. The Night Court does what it wants, Tamlin said. They live by their own codes and their own corrupt morals. They're all sadistic killers, Lucian said. I dared a glance at him. He was now perched on the heron's stone wing, which is the fountain where it was, the head was. (laughs) I looked away again. They delight in torture of every kind and would find this sort of stunt to be amusing. Amusing, but not a message? I scanned the garden. Oh, it's a message, Lucian said. And I cringed at the thick, wet sounds of flesh and bone on stone as he yanked the head off. I'd skinned enough animals, but this... Tamlin put another hand on my shoulder. To get in and out of our defenses, to possibly commit the crime nearby. With the blood this fresh, a splash as Lucian landed in the water again. It's exactly what the High Lord of the Night Court would find amusing. The bastard. So she kind of goes on to question, and she's like, well, is this not part of the blight? And he's kind of like, well, kind of. He's like, the night court knows about the blight, and they know it's awakening again. 
Like, they they all kind of seem to know that something's going to happen soon. So they're kind of sending more and more messages to be like, you're not going to be protected. You're not going to be protected for long. Like, the next wave of this blight is going to come in and we're going to get you. So he goes, you're still safe. The serial's command echoed through my head. Stay with the High Lord, human. You'll be safe. I nodded. She's like, all right. I'll stick with you if you tell me I'm going to be safe. I guess I will uh, believe you. And so they kind of try and reassure her. And she's like, well, I still couldn't paint today because she was upset. But all right. So then some time passes and people are getting ready for a party. And Feyre learns of the summer solstice. Which is... Not like Calamai. It's very light. It's a fun party. It seems more like a May Day celebration. Um, like with maypoles and flower crowns and things like that. And it's actually a holiday from the summer court. But because of the blight and a lot of people have a refuge in the spring court, they kind of took this holiday on. Um... So it's kind of like a light and happy party with music and food and drinks. And Feyre's allowed to go to this one. So Alice gets her all prettied up in a gown and flowers in her hair and sends her on her way. And Lucian's kind of playing babysitter with her. So she's allowed to go to this one, but she's got a babysitter. So she's walking around and she goes over to the refreshments table and she sees fairy wine. Lucian's like, I don't know. I wouldn't drink it if I were you. And she's like, I wouldn't drink it if I were you, and drinks it. And so she almost gets, like, high from it. Like, I feel like the way they're describing it, it almost seems like an ecstasy sort of thing. Like, she's instantly very happy and dancing around, and then this music starts playing, and she, like, starts dancing, and Lucian's kind of like, stop dancing, you're drunk. And she's kind of like, you're drunk, you know, like that whole thing. And so she kind of like, goes through the crowd and gets away from him, and goes over to the musicians, and she sees that one of the fiddlers is Tamlin. And she seems to see a side of him that this is what he would like to be. This is when he's most happy. Not being a high lord, but being a musician making people happy. And he kind of sees her and Lucian runs up and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Tam. She got away from me. She drank the wine. And Tamlin kind of just laughs and he's like, it's fine. I'll watch her. And kind of tells Lucian he can go enjoy the party. And he goes, dance, Vera, dance. And dance does this girl dance. Oh, my God. They describe her as like spinning like a top. Like she just kind of goes and goes, right? Because she's like high on this fairy wine. She's having the time of her life. Truly. And at one point, um, you know, Tamlin kind of stops playing, goes and dances with her for a bit. And then she realizes that the moon is out now. She has been dancing all day and is not tired because she's still on the fairy wine. And so Tamlin kind of grabs her hand and starts like leading her away and they start playing music. And she's like, oh, but, the, but the music's starting again. I want to dance. And he goes, no, I want to show you something. So he brings her up to this meadow, and for a few minutes there was nothing. Then from the opposite side of the meadow, dozens of shimmering shapes floated out across the grass, little more than mirages of moonlight. 
That was when the singing began. It was a collective voice, but it existed both male and female, two sides of the same coin singing to each other in a call and response. I raised a hand to my throat as their music rose and they danced. Ghostly and ethereal, they waltzed across the field, no more than slender slants of moonlight. What are they? Will-o'-the-wisps. Spirit of air and light, he said softly. Come to celebrate the solstice. They're beautiful. His lips grazed my neck as he murmured against my skin. Dance with me, Feyre. <laughs> really? I turned and found his face mere inches from mine. He cracked a lazy smile. Really? As though I were nothing but air myself, he pulled me into a sweeping dance. And they kind of dance with each other with those will-o'-the-wisps around in the moonlight. And it's a really beautiful scene. Um, and she says she feels as unburdened as a piece of dandelion fluff. And he was the wind that stirred her about the world, which is a really pretty way to describe how they're dancing together. He smiled at me, and I found myself smiling back. I didn't need to pretend, didn't need to be anything but what I was right then, being twirled around the meadow, the will-o'-the-wisps dancing around us like dozens of moves. moons. So they kind of eventually slow down and just kind of stand there holding each other as they sway to the songs of the spirits. And he kind of just keeps saying her name almost just like because he likes the sound of it. Um, and then the stars are fading and the sky is turning grayish purple. Tamlin's face was inches from my own. It's almost dawn. I nodded, mesmerized by the sight of him, the smell and feel of him holding me. I reached up to touch his mask. It was so cold, despite how flushed his skin was just beyond it. My hand shook and my breathing became shallow as I grazed the skin of his jaw. It was smooth and hot. Yeah, I bet it is, Feyre. <laughs> so she starts kind of tracing his face and his jaw and his lips. I'm thinking I might kiss you, he said, quietly, intently. Then do it. I blushed at my own boldness. It's that fairy Ryan girl. She's like ready to go. She's like, then kiss me. <laughs> but Tamlin only gave that breathy laugh and leaned in. His lips brushed mine, testing, soft and warm. He pulled back a little. He was still staring at me, and I stared right back as he kissed me again, harder, but nothing like the way he'd kissed my neck. He withdrew more fully this time and watched me. That's it? <laughs> I demanded, and he laughed as he kissed me fiercely. My hands went around his neck, pulling him closer, crushing myself against him. His hands roved my back, playing in my hair, grasping my waist, as if he couldn't touch enough of me at once. He let out a low groan. Come, he said, kissing my brow. She would love to. Um, <laughs> we'll miss it if we don't go now. And so he's kind of pulling her away again, even though I think she just wants to stand there and make out until the sun rises fully, but that's fine. And so he pulls her to the top of this crest on the hill, and they watch as the sky shifts and the clouds are filled with pink light. And then they watch the sunrise. And she describes it as being like seeing the world be born. And they were the sole witnesses. Tamlin's arm tightened around me and he kissed the top of my head. I pulled back, looking up at him. The gold in his eyes, bright with the rising sun, flickered. What? 
My father once told me that I should let my sisters imagine a better life, a better world, and I told him there was no such thing. So Feyre is referencing one time where she was frustrated that her sisters didn't understand, like, everything that was happening or the reality of their situation. They were kind of living in this fantasy world, and the father challenged her and was like, well, can you just let them? Like, if if we're going to care for them, like, can we just let them imagine that there's a better life out there for them? And at the time, she was just in survival mode. She was like, no. So she's thinking about that when she goes. I never understood because I couldn't. Couldn't believe that it was even possible. I swallowed, lowering my hand. Until now. His throat bobbed. His kiss that time was deep and thorough, unhurried and intent. I let the dawn creep inside me, let it grow with each movement of his lips and a brush of his tongue against mine. Tears pricked beneath my closed eyes. It was the happiest moment of my life. Truly, this sounds so beautiful. I want someone to take me to go watch the sunrise like that and dance with me and everything that happened. That was such a beautiful little scene and she's like, oh... It's the happiest moment of my life. And then the book ends happily ever after. Okay, you don't believe me, do you? Okay, well, seeing as how we're only, like, halfway through this book, it's kind of apparent that some shit's about to go down, right? Like, you know it. I know it. We all know it. Well, the next morning, or more like lunch... They're all kind of having a a lunch. They kind of all miss breakfast because, I mean, they were out all night, right? Everyone's kind of hungover, which is kind of really funny. It's almost like a really human thing to happen. They all partied all night and they're like, oh, we missed breakfast. Now we're all having lunch. Um, And they're kind of joking about last night. Like, oh, you guys were out pretty late. Goes Lucian. And then they're all kind of having a good time. But something shifts instantly. They're they're on high alert. They push Feyre to the side and put a glamour on her and tell her to hide and not make any sounds. Um, she's prepared for the adder to be coming back in. But it isn't the adder. Someone casually strolls in. And we see it's the beautiful man from Kalanmai. The most beautiful man she has ever seen comes back in. And so instantly, Tamlin and Lucian are on edge. Hi, Lord, the stranger crooned, inclining his head slightly. Not a bow. Tamlin remained seated. With his back to me, I couldn't see his face, but Tamlin's voice was laced with the promise of violence as he said, What do you want, Reesand? Reesand smiled, heartbreaking in its beauty and put a hand on his chest. Recent? Come now, Tamlin. I don't see you for 49 years, and you start calling me recent? Only my prisoners and my enemies call me that. His grin widened as he finished, and something in his countenance turned feral and deadly, more so than I'd ever seen Tamlin look. Recent turned, and I held my breath as he ran an eye over Lucian. A fox mask. Appropriate for you, Lucian. Go to hell, Reese, Lucian snapped. 
Always a pleasure dealing with the rabble, Reason said, and faced Tamlin again. I still didn't breathe. I hope I wasn't interrupting. We were in the middle of lunch, Tamlin said. His voice vored of the warmth that I'd come accustomed to. The voice of a high lord. It turned my insides cold. And so, Reese is kind of toying with them. They obviously don't want him there. <laughs> and, yeah, he's kind of just like reveling in the fact that they hate him. And Reason goes, and well, so they, they reference the head on the spike. Your present was unnecessary. But a nice reminder of the fun days, wasn't it? Reason clicked his tongue and surveyed the room. Almost half a century holed up in a country estate. I don't know how you manage it. But, he said, facing Tamlin again, you're such a stubborn bastard that this must have seemed like a paradise compared to Under the Mountain. I suppose it is. I'm surprised, though. Forty-nine years and no attempts to save yourself or your lands? Even now that things are getting interesting again? There's nothing to be done, conceded Tamlin, his voice low. Reason approached Tamlin, with each movement smooth as silk. His voice dropped into a whisper, an erotic caress of sound that brought heat to my cheeks. Feyre, is now the time to be getting turned on by this evil man that is very beautiful? I don't know. What's what's going on there? <laughs> what a pity that you must endure the brunt of it, Tamlin. And an even greater pity that you're so resigned to your fate. You might be stubborn, but this is pathetic. How different the High Lord is from the brutal war band leader centuries ago. Lucian interrupted. What do you know about anything? You're just Amarantha's whore. Her whore I might be, but not without my reasons. I flinched as his voice wetted itself into an edge. At least I haven't bidded my time amongst the hedges and flowers while the world has gone to hell. Lucian's sword rose slightly. If you think that's all I've been doing, you'll soon learn otherwise. Little Lucian. You certainly gave him something to talk about when you switched to spring. Such a sad thing to see your lovely mother in perpetual mourning over losing you. And so Wreath has kind of turned his attention to Lucian and is toying with him more. And it's also becoming apparent that Lucian's family is wherever Reasoned is. Under the mountain, it seems. And... Lucian kind of fires back at Reese and his tone changes into that scary tone that Feyre had heard aimed at those three fairies that night. And she's instantly kind of on edge because of it. And Lucian again is kind of hissing back at him, poking fun at the fact that he shares a bed with Amarantha, which we're kind of gleaning. Maybe she is the she from all of the blight talk. And again, they're kind of going back and forth. And it's clear there's a lot of history between these Fae as well, which we didn't really know about before. Um, we don't really know about the other, you know, courts as much. And so Reese is kind of looking around and he notices that there is a third place setting where Feyre had been sitting. And it was half eaten. 
Where's your guest? Reason asked, lifting my goblet and sniffing it before setting it down again. I sent them off when I sensed your arrival, Tamlin lied coolly. Reason now faced the High Lord, and his, ex- and his perfect face was void of emotion before his brows rose. A flicker of excitement, perhaps even disbelief, flashed across his features, and he whipped his head to Lucian. Magic seared my nostrils, and I stared at Reason in undiluted terror as his face contoured with rage. You dare glamour me? He growled, his violet eyes burning as they bore into my own. Lucian just pressed me harder into the wall. So, we can see Farrah now. She's not hidden. Tamla's chair groaned as it was shoved back. He rose, claws at the ready, deadlier than any of the knives strapped to him. Reason's face became a mask of calm fury as he stared and stared at me. I remember you, he purred. It seems like you ignored my warning to stay out of trouble. He turned to Tamlin. Who, pray tell, is your guest? And so Lucian jumps in with a lie saying that Feyre's his betrothed, but like, it's not a good lie. But he tried. And so Reason kind of comes over. And they're all just freaking out. They they obviously are trying to protect Feyre, but it's obvious that they're terrified of Reasoned. And he's so powerful that they're kind of scared to really challenge him. And so Reese brush, like brushes Lucian away, and he also kind of pulls the knife that Feyre had grabbed from the table out of her hands with, you know, no challenge at all. And he holds her frozen through her mind. So he's now controlling her mind and she can feel his claws in her mind, like rifling through all of her thoughts and feelings. And she's just utterly terrified and she's frozen. Like he's paralyzed her. Um, and he goes through her thoughts and starts to embarrass her. He reveals some of her, you know, more sexual thoughts and fantasies about Tamlin. And, After he's toyed with her a bit and utterly terrified her, he releases her and she kind of drops to the ground and tries not to get sick on the floor. And he demands to know her name, which they don't want to tell her at first. Um, Tell him at first. So he keeps demanding and eventually she just spits out Claire Better, which is one of her friends from the, one of her sister's friends from the village that she can't even really picture what she looks like or really remember her. It's just a name that came to mind and she just spit out because she knew she didn't want to say her own. For fear of him going and finding her family. So, Reese seems, like, satisfied with that answer. And he's like, well, that was entertaining. The most fun I've had in ages, actually. I'm looking forward to seeing you three under the mountain. I'll give Amarantha your regards. And then Reese vanished into nothing. As if he'd stepped through a rip in the world. Leaving us alone in a horrible trembling silence so pretty much right after that tamlin's like go to your room he's all freaked out and he's like i i gotta talk to lucian so she goes up to her room and she kind of is just waiting around just thinking about everything she heard in this conversation that amarantha is the cause of this blight and under the mountain seems to be their lair and it seems like the other courts are trapped there And for some reason, Tamlin's court isn't. And everyone keeps talking about this 49 years thing. 
And that's also the time where they all had their masks stuck on them. So she realizes, like, something else is happening here. They all keep referencing 49 years, but it also seems like something's going to happen at 50 years, and she doesn't really know what. Um, so Tamlin later comes up and tells her that he's sending her home to keep her safe. And Feyre doesn't want to go and it instantly is obviously crushed by this news because she loves Tamlin. She hasn't told him yet, but she loves Tamlin. And she doesn't want to go, but it's not up for debate. She she keeps asking, like, what did I do wrong? Like, I, oh my gosh, like, what what's wrong with me? And he's like, nothing, you're perfect. But I just can't imagine what they'd do to you if they got your hands, their hands on you. So you need to go home. Which I don't really know what going back to the, you know human realm was going to do for her, but he probably assumes that because they know that she's there, they're probably going to send people back pretty soon to come and just, like, torture everyone. And also, everyone keeps talking about this 50 years thing, so it seems like something is about to happen, and he knows it. And so, he reassures her she didn't do anything wrong, she's perfect, but he couldn't let her fall into the wrong hands. And almost, like, out of desperation, they just start making out hard, right? It's like a release. Like, it's been building up this entire book. Like, we're, like, almost 250 pages in. And we've been waiting for these two characters to fuck the whole time. And so they finally do. And it's great. And it is multiple pages of sex scene. And if you don't even read these books, I suggest just reading the sex scenes in them, at least. Because they're very well written. And, you know, sex scenes for women, I feel like aren't usually well written out there. Um, a lot of sex scenes are written for men, but these are written for women and you should go read them because they fuck not once, but twice throughout the night. The first time is very passionate and like raw and the next one's a lot more sensual. And after they have sex the second time, he tells her that she's leaving tomorrow morning and her heart is just broken about this news, but she understands why he's doing it. So the next day, she says goodbye to Alice and Lucian, and Lucian even tries to kind of get Tamlin to give her some more time, which is weird. Like, he says something like, why don't you just give her a few more days? But it's like, a few more days to do what? I don't know. And so he puts her in a carriage with a bunch of belongings, and he also gives her a bunch of jewels and gold. So he's, like, taking care of her before he sends her on her way. Tamlin's fingers brushed my mouth. The carriage jolted as the six white horses started to walk. I bit my lip to keep it from wobbling. Tamlin smiled at me one last time. I love you, he said, and stepped away. I should say it. I should say those words, but they got stuck in my throat because... Because of what he had to face. Because he might not find me again despite his promise to. Because... Because beneath it all, he was an immortal and I would grow old and die. And maybe he meant it now, but perhaps last night had been as altering for him as it had been for me. Again, read the sex scene. It's really good. Uh, but I would not become a burden to him. I would not become another weight pressing upon his shoulders. So I said nothing as the carriage moved. And I did not look back as we passed through the manor gates and into the forest beyond. Woo! So, damn! He's like, I love you, and she goes, thanks. <laughs> and her reasoning for it is true. She's like, I don't want to be a burden to him. 
He's going to live forever. I'm going to die. He has so much to, like, deal with and so much to protect already. I don't want to be another burden for him. So she chooses not to tell him that she loves him, even though she does, to try and protect him. And we'll find out later that this was the wrong choice to make, but we'll get into it. So she kind of falls asleep again when she's in the carriage by magic and wakes up, pulling up to this large estate, which she realizes her family's new manor. Tamlin really has taken care of them, which makes her love him even more because they are truly taken care of at this point. The housekeeper seems kind of like confused when she shows up. Because she's like, hi. And she's like, I'm Feyre. And she's like, okay. (laughs) But then Elaine sees her and is just overjoyed. She greets her and tells her how their father became a merchant again. Like someone came up with an investment opportunity. And that was like too good to say no to. And he did it. And then they made all this money. uh, Which obviously was all because of Tamlin. There was no merchant. But that's fine. And so... She goes to show her through all the house and she's just so overjoyed and just so, like, nice as Elaine usually is. And Nesta seems to be really offstandish. It's like she almost sees through the dead aunt story and doesn't believe that Feyre has been with their aunt tending to her. And they just have this nice inheritance now and that's where all of her jewels came from. Her father weeps when he sees her again because no matter his faults, he does truly love her. And him and Elaine decide to throw a ball in her honor. But all Feyre can do is think of the Suriel's warning. To stay with the High Lord to be safe. And she knows she should not have left. That's where I'm going to stop for today. Because there is so much left in this book. And this is already a very long episode. So I'm going to stop here. And leave you with that cliffhanger. Is she ever going to see Tamlin again? What about the blight? What about this ball they're planning her? How's that going to go? Why doesn't Nesta believe the story? Interesting. Well, we'll get into all of that in the next episode. Um, so stay tuned. I'm not even really going to do a real outro. I'm just going to leave you with this. Stay with the High Lord and you'll be safe. Hmm. Tune in next week to find out what happens. Okay, bye.